Comb my face, baby. episode of Directors Club, but we are still indeed covering a director. Uh, what prompted this particular episode was I got an email from a listener that said, would you, could you cover the f- work of a filmmaker that has made one and only one feature? Could we make it a full episode? I think we can. <laughs> the first one that came to mind is who we'll be discussing today, especially in light of a recent Blu-ray release that we're very excited about, and I want everyone hearing this episode to rush out and buy it immediately, and I couldn't do this alone. That would be ridiculous. That'd be kind of weird if you just heard me monologuing the whole time. I wanted to finally invite to the show one of the best film critics working today, and writing today, of course, a member of the Chicago Film Critics Association, someone I always look forward to running into at screenings. Please welcome Mr. Robert Daniels. Thanks for having me, Jim. It's uh, about time, right? <laughs> no, it is. Yeah, we and cross I, paths a lot. But. We were saying earlier before we started recording, uh, it's very, it's rare that I get invited onto a podcast to talk about a movie that I love. Um, so Yay. I will try not to say anything incendiary about movies I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know, but it's the summer season. I don't get that excited about a lot of new releases, so I, I don't venture out as much as I'd like. I mean, like even recently, like uh, do I really need to see Strays? I don't know. I'm sure it's oh, funny, but I saw Strays. You don't need to see okay. Strays. Okay, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's just like things I'm going. I don't know if that'll add to. My, I don't know if I'll have anything interesting to say or write about it. You know, so. But I do know you've interviewed the director of this episode, Wendell B. Harris, the star of the show today, uh, and we're going to get to his incredible film, Chameleon Street. Uh, but before we all do all that, uh, since you're the... F- Robert, this is the first time you're on the podcast, and I want to know a little bit about your background. How did you become a cinephile and a film critic, and how did this all start for you? Was it a specific film or a series of different experiences that led you to being like, movies are for me? <laughs> Well, it's very interesting. I re- I didn't really go grow up with movies that much, um, particularly when I was a kid. Um, uh, we really didn't have like the disposable income. I grew up on the west side of Chicago. Um, mm. We really didn't have disposable income to really go to movies when I was a kid. Um, we, I didn't really get into movies until um, I was, uh, I guess, uh, early teenager. Um, mm. And my dad... Uh, was forced into early retirement <laughs> um, due, to, due, yeah. due to health problems. And um, he started hanging around the house more. And uh, um, he would watch TCM. And I would Yay. come up behind him and be like, what are you watching? And he'd be like, how don't you know about this? And I'm like, <laughs> I mean, you are the parent. You're supposed to be teaching me. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, and so I really didn't get into film until kind, kind of late. And even then it was a, um, you know, it was it was... It was around, but it wasn't something I, I never thought, oh, I'm going to be a, 
a film critic. You know, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know of many black film critics um, around. True. I mean, like, you know, uh, especially during the 90s and early 2000s, it's like Armand White and that's Elvis Mitchell. And Elvis Mitchell, yeah. and that's kind of it. Right. That's <laughs> <laughs> all I can think of, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's so the, there weren't, there really weren't many around. So, the, and I didn't even know what a film critic did. I, I mean, I knew like Cisco and Ebert on television, but. Sure. You know, like I, I didn't know what they did, um, and so um, it wasn't until I got to college that you know I took this um, um, like intro to film class. Yeah, um, <laughs> they showed a Citizen Kane and Psycho. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my class. <laughs> so, and for this class, I think we watched uh, we watched Sunrise. Um, awesome. We watched um, Ali Fear Eats the Soul. Mm. Um, and uh, as basic as it sounds, we watched Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half, and it literally changed my life. I was oh, like, shit. what is this? <laughs> I didn't know movies could do that. Like, I'd seen yeah. the, a lot of classic Hollywood stuff, but of course, you know, Eight and a Half is uh, to, to the side of it, of course, you know. But, um, and th- there aren't, it's not like there aren't like classic Hollywood bits in it, but it's clearly like homaging it mm-hmm. in, in parts. Oh, sure. But, yeah. but in terms of like the fractured way it told uh, of its storytelling, um, and like the meta narrative running through it, I was just like enthralled by it. And um, um, but even then, I didn't I didn't get into film criticism. I wanted to be a book a book editor. <laughs> oh, that's so cool too. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. wanted to be a book editor. I went to my undergrad and my grad degree in English literary studies. Mm. Um, and then yeah, I almost did that too. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> I was like, but then all the all the professors like, you got to be prepared to teach. That's all English majors do is teach. Oh yeah, no, I I um did not want to teach. Right. Same here. <laughs> I I so I was asking my professors like, what what is something I can do that doesn't require me working, you know, like doing copy editing and stuff like that. You know, I can do copy editing. I took copy editing classes. I, you know, I'm not a good copy because <laughs> I'm not a prescriptionist. I, sure. I, and I think grammar is malleable. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. It's really capturing the emotion, what you're thinking and feeling in an articulate manner. You know? Yeah, it's, you know, half the rules of bullshit anyway. So I can curse True. on this podcast, Yes, right? you can. Okay, cool. As much as you want. <laughs> Fuck yes. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, I think, you know, most of it's bullshit anyways. But, um, but um, and one of my professors was like, oh, you could become a developmental editor and mm. for listeners who don't know what a developmental editor is that's the person who actually is you know talking with the writer through their ideas and literally developing the idea yeah. um and i was like that sounds like the job for me yes it does <laughs> um, and but you know when i got out of grad school it was so hard to try to get break into the publishing business especially because mm-hmm. i wanted to one moves to the East Coast. I had like ladybird dreams and stuff like that, <laughs> and um, and I went out to and I took a few trips to New York and uh, visited Harper Collins and interviewed and stuff like that. Wow, like at one point, sweet. I in, interviewed for One World for for Penguin, and they summarily showed me the door. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and uh, the person who the person I was dating at the time was like, well. Because I think I was like ranting about a movie that we'd seen. I can't even remember the movie. I, <laughs> I can't. But and she was just like, I think she was just tired of like me just ranting. She was like, why don't you just write it, write it down and start yeah. like a thing. And I was like, well, that sounds like a good idea. Structure your thoughts. Yeah. And when, all down. When I was in grad school, I took this 
class called digital publishing was like how to Ooh. create your own website and blogs and stuff like that and how to kind of do like online writing you know how to alter your voice for that and i was like oh yeah i mean i did that before i, I made a little blog when i was in college about um guitars oh wow um and i was like oh maybe if i do one about film that'd be interesting and um uh, you know, the path that I have taken, I will say, is not repeatable. <laughs> I, I came in at just the right time. I started a blog. I wrote Was it at Blogspot? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. It was it was on WordPress. It was on oh, WordPress. Cool. And it was yeah. actually kind of that's like... It was still being eight, used today. 812 Film Reviews. Yeah. You know, that's what it was, which is... if It's not an area code. It's literally eight and a half. Uh, is the reference. <laughs> how did I not pick up on that? That's so funny. <laughs> no one ever picks up on it, and it's that's why it's a dumb name. <laughs> oh, no. I always I have like to explain it. it. People are like, oh, now I get you. Yeah. 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 But, yeah, and so, and then from then on, I mean, I started it, and then within, I'm trying to think, within like a, six months, I was like covering Chicago Critics Film Festival. Right. Um, and then within... Eight months I was at TIFF and I, I was. Uh, You've gotten Tomatoes around approved. to a lot of festivals. Yeah, and Rotten Tomatoes approved, and, and and ever since it's been it's been high flying. And I was like, you know, I graduated. I graduated grad school twenty seventeen, and I started that eight one two film reviews late in twenty seventeen, like wow. December I think twenty seventeen. Um, and and so yeah, so everything. I just I've done, assume you've been yeah. around a lot longer because your writing is just yeah, it just <laughs> feels like you've been doing it for a long time. But it also reads it so naturalistic and just like oh, thank you. Yeah, like, <laughs> I just I just always go, man, I wish you could write like that. <laughs> it's all both you and Mariah. Like I feel that way. <laughs> it's it's all a con. <laughs> <laughs> a con. Wow. Well, geez, we're gonna get to more of that later on. <laughs> no, it's it's weird because when I first started, I was so, um, I really I I was so close to. Going and be and do getting a PhD because I mm. really kind of was interested in academia and I really like studying. I like academic, the academic really style of writing. Too, yeah. And so when I first started writing, I really was my main prerogative was trying to program myself out of the very stilted, very structured mm -hmm. academic style. And I still think it's there. Yeah. Um, well, it, but it's, it's nice to hear that it's more naturalistic. It, now. it reads that way to me, at least. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's funny when I think about how I've been told not to put yourself too much into a review, but then I look back at the first critic that I connected with, of course, Roger Ebert, because I lived in Chicago and I, you know, read the Sun Times, yeah. and he had a tendency to always put himself in the in a review, and yeah. I understand obje objectivity and not making it, you know, like too autobiographical to a fault, but. It's like kind of hard not for me for, for me to just be like this is how I felt. <laughs> yeah. You know, and because it's already implied that you're the person writing the review, so you don't need to say I felt this or I did that or you know, or I experienced this necessarily, but I don't know. <laughs> I still yeah. I still struggle to cuz I I've been doing the Substack thing now and I feel really good about it and people seem to really respond when I do get very personal. Like even my my uh, partner, Sharon, she's like, I think it's better when you'd actually tell a story of something that happened to you personally involving that piece of art, whether it's a song or a film. You know? Yeah, I think it's I think it's definitely something that is 
programmed out of people. Yeah. But I think it's it's just an it's, it's another tool in the toolbox, right? Sure. I do it yeah. all the time where I, I draw like on a personal kind of connection to it, and you know it's kind of amazing. I think for, if I had a, a nickel for every time someone said Roger Ebert would never, <laughs> <laughs> like, and yeah. what you find is that Roger Ebert always got personal. He always talked about politics. He always yeah. talked about gender and, and stuff like that. And he did culture. And I mean, like, I think a good reviewer, a good critic is using all those toolbox, sometimes all yeah. at once, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I feel like it's yeah. important to state a bias. Like, if there's a movie about a father and son relationship, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's been examples, like even something like Tim Burton's Big Fish, which has that incredibly poignant and just, like, profound ending and yet I can like say, oh, that's a flawed film, but let me tell you, I had a father and son, you know, relationship that ended really quickly on me, you know, and it's and it's sad and it still gets to me. So how can I not have an even more intense emotional reaction to a movie? Yeah. And maybe I'll elevate it a little bit more because of that, you know. I'd yeah. Say, I'd send, I, I, I will stay things like that so people know where I'm coming from because maybe they won't have that same reaction. Yeah, no, my uh, Ryan knows that if it's there's a dead dad in it, four yep. out of four for me. Yeah. <laughs> four the road. Of, <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> four out of four. I'm here. It's that or like if it's uh, post apocalyptic mm. or it's set in space. Oh man, the road must be yeah, like really hard on you. <laughs> oh, boy. Or or if it's set in spaces, I'm I'm a or it's a da- disaster movie. I'm a sucker for space post post apocalyptic disaster. Movies. Sometimes all those <laughs> like Ad Astra fall into one. <laughs> Oh yeah, Mitchell <laughs> Beaupre and I had a great talk about that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure because it was like I was surprised at how strongly they felt about it and I was surprised that I didn't get a strong reaction from the Tommy Lee Jones Brad Pitt uh, portion of the film late in the film. Like I was like, how come this isn't connecting with me in a way? I, I think I almost was pre-programmed to walk in there and be like, I'm going to cry. I'm going to be so moved because it's father and sons. And this time it didn't happen. Yeah. But on a second viewing, it, I love it more. So Yeah. Mariah said she, so when she heard about that movie, she, her dad had told her about it <laughs> and her dad had mentioned the spoiler alert the killer baboons in space and she thought her dad had like made it up like he was just <laughs> thinking about another movie and she was like surely you're this is not a real thing that happened in that movie and then she went and saw the movie she was like holy shit wow this is real yeah <laughs> a lot of yeah a lot of episodic interesting things happen in that movie this the uh the chase on the moon was it or i don't know if it was the moon. yeah yeah, it yeah it's kind of, it's i think it's a moon kind yeah, of thing. Or yeah, moon. yeah yeah something like that, that. Was so cool so I also think since we're talking about film criticism as a whole, I'm just curious to just hear about your feelings about the state of film criticism today because, you know, I've I've been as freelance and kind of sporadic as it comes when, as I mentioned earlier, about writing new movies because I just don't get as excited about them. I mean, there's I have the Criterion channel. There's so many movies from the past that I, I would rather focus on and learn about and study further, but are you required basically to go out every week and see a new release and then have something to say or write about it? Um, <laughs> the state of film criticism. <laughs> yeah. Pertaining to that. Yeah. yeah no, I mean, I don't, I Cause don't that f- whole guardian article really like, I don't know, caused a stir. 
yeah. in social media. Circles. Yes, yes. <laughs> like Guardian it's all about article. influencers and not critics anymore. So. Yes, yeah. I I have I am of several minds. <laughs> One, I I don't feel the need to go out and see as many films on a week to week basis. Not as much as when I have my own blog and yeah. I needed to kind of like keep that kind of up. Sure, sure. You know, now I, I have, I don't see need to see the, the 35th Marvel film, you know, yeah. like <laughs> we've got the gist already. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still do, I still, I mean, I love going to festivals, right? I oh, love course. going to, uh, I went to Cannes um, over the summer. I went to Colobivari International Film Festival in the Czech Republic. Um, I love going to regional festivals. I, I usually go to Virginia Film Festival. Um, I like finding the films that you can't find anywhere else. And I like discoveries. I yeah. like finding a voice that is, is new and interesting. And, and that's who, what happens for the Chicago Critics Film Festival. That's yeah. what's so great about it. Like Brother. Yeah. Seeing it on that there was just tremendous. Oh, yeah. Brother is fantastic. And Brother yeah. was one of those films I, I walked into not ha- really having a vibe for. You know, I, I knew a bit about that director. And I was like, okay, well... This should be interesting, and it was just a total surprise. And I remember sitting there with Brian Talarico, and we looked at each other like, "Wow, this <laughs> yeah. is this movie's amazing. This is like the movie. This is why you come to festivals to find right. these movies." Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm not in, as invested in, in the week to week. Um, and also part of that is because I go to so many festivals. Sure. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. You know, like, you know, I've. God bless you for doing that. Because <laughs> I don't know, watching four or five movies. I know Eric does it, Brian does it. It's just like four or five movies in a day. I, my brain would be fried. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, you know, and my brain is fried. I mean, yeah. You know, but, you know, sometimes, you know, you just. The, the delirium. That's how you know sometimes a sure. movie's great. <laughs> it works yeah. through, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, so that's also part of it is I see the films at film festivals. And so when they actually come out, it's like, oh, I've seen this already. I always joke with whenever I, I go to my day job and people are like, "What? what's good that's out right now? And I'm always like, I am the worst person to ask because <laughs> I don't know. I'm usually like two, three weeks ahead, sometimes even a few months ahead, right? I, yeah. I don't know what's out. I don't know what's out right now. I still think it's Oppenheimer and Barbie. That's yeah. all you need to know. <laughs> That's all I know. Yeah. And someone was like, someone posted this, like, look at all the films, you know, that are coming out this week. And I'm like, all these films are coming out. Didn't these come out months ago? Or yeah. <laughs> um, but in terms of the state of film criticism uh, from that article that we were reading yeah. about, um, uh, that appeared in The Guardian about influencers and the outsized, um, um, well, influence that they have. Yes, they do have an influence. <laughs> in the industry, I think it's. It's fascinating because I agreed with the article in the sense that I think too many critics have blurred the lines, mm. right? I think there's a, there's a, um, and this will get me in trouble with my critic brethren, but it's going to happen. Fine by me. <laughs> Controversy. <laughs> it's in the area it takes. I didn't think I was going to deliver any, but it's <laughs> happening now. Um, but no, I mean, like, I think, like, you know, stuff like award swag during, I, I yeah. hate it. Yeah. I fucking hate it. And if you take it that to a point, that's fine. But I hate that like so many critics will post a picture like, "Oh, look what oh, I, I hate got!" That too, so look much. what I got! And that's like, that's don't even post commercial. your screeners on. Yeah, I don't know. it's a free commercial. What are you doing? Stop! Yeah. You know, and I do think that that like I said, there is a, a blurring of the line in terms of like, and we see it right. We see like film that premieres in LA and the social media embargo lifts and oh yeah. my god greatest movie of all time oh my we're gonna be talking the about the hyperbole machine you know? is just uh, and on it's overload like, 
there's a whole group of people who call themselves critics. And I'm like, are you really a critic? (laughs) (laughs) They're just tweeting. That's all they're doing. You're just tweeting. And to a point, you know, I I mean, I I try to be sympathetic of like, if you don't tweet that. I mean, I think we are lucky in Chicago in the sense that we, for this is some inside baseball, like we have allied, right? So we have an intermediary between us and the studio, right? Right, right. So, like, if we publish something that is incendiary, um, we're not going to be banned from a screening, Mm -hmm. right? And I've heard so many horror stories from my colleagues in New York, from my colleagues in LA, of like, studio publicists who one bad review and that oh, was it they yeah. were on their shit list that used and, to happen a lot more yeah for, and even for chicago i think yeah you know, and so according it's, to dan geyer yeah it's it's i i get it right you you want to protect that access but if all you're doing is protecting access then are you a critic anymore right right i mean it's you are not guaranteed access um and that's just kind of it right mm-hmm. i mean you sh- but the reader and the person who's is 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 receiving the stuff from you is guaranteed the truth. Yeah, um, that's important. I think not as many you people deliver. Honest. Yeah, not as many people deliver the truth, and so you know. And uh, there's also the idea of influencers, and um, you know, it's interesting. I actually don't kind of I don't mind influence as much as as my brethren do. I think most because I think you know it's. It's a short-lived thing, I think. Yeah. You know, most of it's based around TikTok. TikTok is like it's any social content media. Now. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a fad, and yeah. people have been influencers have technically been around for decades. There used to be newspaper ads with just random people, practically that you never heard of from a publication you've never heard of, just giving a rave or four stars. And I'm just like, who are these people? And I think even Eric was doing something called like critic watch for a while. Yeah. That was just like pointing these out. Like why, why would somebody say this? Why would somebody say that? And it's just, yeah, I remember now where I was going before I, so I think the other thing, I think there are two things about influencers, right? I think one influencers get paid money that critics really, we can't dream of. I mean, that's Mm. kind of it. Like the, the, business model of criticism is fucked yeah i mean that's just kind yeah. of it right i mean there's there are fewer and fewer fewer and fewer staff jobs mm-hmm. if someone even someone retires that staff job gets doled out to 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 freelancers and it never gets filled and yeah. then you know we that's one last job and one last job and one last job and it keeps contracting 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 and when you see someone who is young and is getting a lot of notoriety um, and is getting a lot of money, and they don't have as much expertise as you, and you see your your um, your industry dying. Yeah, of course you're going to be angry at influencers. Yeah. Now, what I also say is, I think influencers are very, very well liked, and <laughs> by everyone because they don't they don't they're cause full waves. of positive energy. Yeah, they're full yeah. of po- positive energy. They, they 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 don't create waves, and I think think that there is. Um, and I, maybe this is infl- it doesn't factor in as much as I think it does, but I do also think that like there's been a recent wave of criticism we see every so often on Twitter of like critics desperately wanting to be liked, hmm. desperately wanting to be liked, and yeah. not understanding why people either a don't like them or b don't understand what they do, and people have never understood what critics for critics do. That's sure. just kind of it. Like yeah, no more or less. Yeah. That's, been, it's been, that's been the case through the annals of time, unless you're someone maybe like Roger Ebert or something like that. Yeah. Um, uh, very few critics are liked. I mean, it's kind of like the 
the purpose of being a critic is really not to be liked. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so, yeah. But we love the, the art that we're covering, and we feel passionate about it. And the thing is, is like I've, I think I even talked to Dave Canfield about this, the idea of like labeling yourself as a critic these days does come with negative connotation to where I'm like, well, maybe I'm just a film enthusiast, you know? But then, I don't know, it, it sort of has bled into podcasting where most of the podcasts I listen to, I, I, I don't know if you consider them influencers, but certainly they just basically praise everything. Like, I don't really... And I, I, I want that, too, to some degree, because a lot of movies, especially the older films, they deserve, and we're going to talk about one, they deserve recognition. They deserve to be seen. They deserve to be talked about. Um, but for the most part, I feel like a lot of podcasts I subscribe to don't take the criticism route, you yeah. know? Uh, and I just wonder if a lot of podcasters don't feel like film critics or they should be labeled film critics necessarily, you know? Yeah. And that's where I've mainly focused on, which is why I wanted to get more back into, back into writing, even if it's mostly about things I love. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's just like, you got to keep exercising that muscle. And if I've always wanted to be a film critic, the same way I always thought similar to you, when I majored in English, I want to be a journalist. I want to write for Rolling Stone or something like that, because I really went back and forth between, Am I going to go to Greg Cott for advice? Am I going to go to Roger Ebert for advice? You know, at <laughs> yeah. a certain point in time, you know, and it's just like, at at one point, I just went. I think the industry is changing in a way that's a little scary. You know, it's yeah. similar to what we're talking about now with AI. I don't know what's going to happen in the next five years with that. Yeah, and have you have you read the um, the um, A.L. Scott's book? Yeah, um, but yeah. he talks about that. He, uh, yeah, about right. like the 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 past of like you can find these examples even in old Hollywood of mm -hmm. like critics who are like you know either yeah. hated or like the malign of the joke in in or the the, the butt of the joke in, and in a lot of films mm -hmm. um and so like I don't think it's a recent thing of no like you're right it of is having it being a critic having a negative connotation I think it's that's always happened I think what has yeah. amplified that is being on social media yeah I think which that's, is why I it turned <laughs> off by being on social media most of the time because yeah. you sort of end up becoming a part of that. I don't know that I don't want to say cesspool, but <laughs> you know, there's just I don't know. I just feel conflicted anytime I decide like I'm going to post about this. I'm going to post about that. I'm basically just using it to promote whatever I'm working on. Yeah, you know? and you, I don't want to engage as much with negativity. Yeah, and that's like the problem with you know. I and I talked to so many critics who were just like, oh yeah, I read the comments. I was like, don't read the comments. Yeah, don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, I do not I do not read comments I don't my, my Twitter now called X set up so I don't get notifications from people I don't follow like yeah. I don't I don't want to know and I think there there is there was a kind of the thing that we have lost in contemporary criticism because there are people who aren't writing for outlets or not even just outlets but like aren't um, with like a newspaper or something like that right is that protection, mm -hmm. right? That yeah. uh, that wall away from the reader. And you sometimes you need that wall. Sure. And social media takes that wall away. And so th there's yeah. this like outsized that. belief that like, oh, critics aren't as well liked anymore and stuff like that. And it's like, no, it's just it's social media like social media doing what social media does, amplifying that. Yeah. Um, and right. granted, there is, I do think there is, of course, a strain of anti-intellectualism mm -hmm. and people who really are just looking for uh, just things that they agree with. Yeah. Um, but once again, I think what has amplified that has been social media. I think mm. it's probably slightly increased 
in the decades, but I don't think it's increased to the point of that everyone else thinks right. it has. And I they're think, also looking yeah. for something digestible that they can read in like a second and then move on to the next thing. And that sort of bugs me about it too. But I just wonder yeah. if like, this has probably been true since the beginning too, but does the general public just equate criticism with negativity? Yeah. Just like a <laughs> critic is just going to basically point out all the things that are bad about you know, the art that they're covering. The know? New York Times had that the article about TikTokers, right? And yeah. A, a movie talk and how the, I think one of the, the movie talk people was, they were like, um, they're like, critics are always looking for something wrong. Yeah. And I, I always try to focus on the positive. What I, I try to too. <laughs> what I really like about, um, and Rod, not just Roger Ebert, but I think really good critics and really good criticism. And I think maybe um, we were talking about like writing, right? And one of my approaches of when I'm writing a review, and I think I've kind of noticed this when I was trying to get into criticism, like, mm-hmm. what do all these critics do? What moves do they make? Was I think for almost all of the really good critics, within the first paragraph, you know their thoughts on the film. You know whether they liked it, they yeah. didn't like it, and the, the, the general sense of it. And then if you want to drop out, you could. True. Or if you wanted to keep reading, you could. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I try to do in mine. I tried not, I mean, that setup, Yeah. I try to have that setup be, if you only read the first paragraph, you had at least read the review. That is a very sort of um, scholarly approach because there's the <laughs> abstract in like, you know, research papers where the yeah. abstract sort of highlights and outlines exactly the what to expect yes. from the, the paragraphs to come. Yeah, I never let the acad- academic yeah. writing. <laughs> no, I mean, that's fine by me. I like that, actually. You know, and that's somebody who, yeah, loved writing essays for, like, psychology classes and things like that, you know? It's yeah. just, I was like, I think I just like the idea of organizing what I want to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As opposed to just like letting it all out in front of a microphone, but that's also what I do too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I also you know? tend not to like, I tend not to like think in, in structures. I think in structures in the edit, but like when I'm True. writing. True. I is it to, more stream of consciousness? It just flows? It's more stream of consciousness. Funny enough, what I tend to do is I tend to write, the first paragraph I end up writing actually almost always ends up being the second to last paragraph of the review. Mm. And I build around it. And I'm kind of jumping around when I'm writing a review. I'm not really going beginning yeah. to end. Okay. I, and I don't outline. I just I jump around a lot. And I kind of like the first paragraph. I think the reason the first paragraph is, I mean, the, the first paragraph I like, I write is the second to last paragraph is I think um, like in poetry, right? You sure. have the turn. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> English majors. <laughs> and I think of, I think that that applies not just to poetry, but it mm-hmm. applies to all good writing. And you, sometimes you have to write to the turn, right? Not yeah. to the end necessarily, but to the turn. And so for me, the turn is always kind of like, what is this actually about? Right. Um, and so what I end up doing is, I almost never have writer's block because the second to last paragraph is almost always, or the, the first paragraphs I write, is the thing I most I feel most strongly about. It's hmm. my strongest point. And I dive in from that. And yeah. then from that point, I can build around it. Um, and so I'm, I almost never have writer's block because it's always like, what's <laughs> the, the first thing that I'm really passionate about? Yeah. Even if it's like something I'm not passionate about, there has to be something I'm passionate about, even s- if it's dispassionate. When you watch a movie then, are you... Like when you walk out of a movie, do you automatically go, "I gotta 
write down something or is it you wait to process it and then you come home and write it? Because I always find that interesting. There are people who take, still take notes yeah. in the middle of a movie. And I'm more of like, I just want to immerse myself in the movie and not think about what I have to write down. But I, I also understand and respect the people who take notes too. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a different process for everybody to some degree, I would think. But yeah, I don't know. I just I just want to f- feel the feelings I'm going to feel <laughs> in the movie and not think about the words necessarily or like the plot points. You know, I think that's what I remember the most about movies too is what I felt watching them as opposed to this thing happened and that thing happened and that thing happened. But all that's important too in a review, especially if you're giving a synopsis, you know? Yeah, no, I think um, it depends on the film. It depends on, of course, the the situation I'm in, right? If I'm like Mm -hmm. on deadline at a a festival, like I remember saying um, this past can, I watched uh, Indiana Jones and I was writing my review as I was walking out. I was literally on my phone writing it. And then by the time I got back to my Airbnb, it was like a, 15 minute walk back I'd written like a third of the review already that's, that's great um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just amazed that people do that <laughs> and then sometimes I need to think right I mean yeah. like um, All Dirt Roads Taste of Salt which I saw at Sundance um, actually we, we I Mariah, keep hearing about that one yeah it's great it's fantastic yeah. Raven Jackson's a brilliant filmmaker and um, and so Mariah and I saw actually at a pre-screening um, and I remember walking out and like, I can't write about that film right now. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I spent maybe the whole, I think it was a week adding here, adding mm. there, writing a little bit here, writing a little bit so there. So it does vary film yeah. to film. Yeah. yeah, it does vary. Most of the time I write a review pretty quickly. I, I usually get a draft out within 80 minutes or so, mm-hmm. 80 to 90 minutes. Um, and then sometimes if it's really, the movie's really shit, <laughs> I've started writing the review in the middle of the movie, like literally longhand. Wow. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, if you're not engaged that for, with it, yeah. I did that for well. emancipation. Oh, sure. Well, yeah. I did that, that for sense. emancipation. In the middle, I was like, I know where this movie's going. <laughs> I've seen enough Sometimes of these kind of movies. Sometimes you just know. You've seen enough movies. You just can. You get a sense that this probably isn't going to get any better. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember turning that review in. Basically, like by the time I got home, I walked through the door. I I was like, Oh, do you need to write? And I was like, No, I returned it in. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Brian's got it. <laughs> Eventually, in, in the future, our brains will just put it all on the screen, you know, on our computer screens automatically. It'll just be like, we look uh-huh. at the screen and then bam, all the review is already written out for us. I'm, yeah. I'm a little, I, I keep hearing, and I certainly heard a, a review on a pod, or um, an interview on a podcast about AI, and like, they're, they're just saying it's, you have no idea how bad it is, and it's almost like we th- we see chat, chat GPT, and we're like, oh, we don't have to worry at all. That's crap. No one's ever gonna, you know, think that is gonna take over writing entirely. But yeah. then there is other variations of it that are more evolved, more advanced that we don't have access to yet, that we don't know about, that are scaring the shit out of people <laughs> right yeah. now. So yeah. I'm like, I don't want to see that happen. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, and um, so you, I, you know, reviews, of course, I tend to write quickly. Think pieces take mm-hmm. a lot longer. Oh, yeah. A oh, lot yeah. longer. Yeah. Um, and like, I will, I mean, like, I, the first draft will come out very quickly. First draft would be a vomit draft, come out. And then as I'm drafting, I'm going back and forth with whoever editor I'm working with, I will. I agonize. Sure. Agonize. I throw counter arguments at it and I'm just kind of trying to, I'm trying to 
pull at every thread to see if I can make it collapse, right? And mm-hmm. um, and I'll spend days just staying up till like three, four in the morning. And Mariah has seen me do do this. <laughs> I'll take a walk to the beach and just like Ben Affleck stare out into oh, the sky. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that helps. Thank God we live close to the beach. <laughs> and and I, you know, I by the time like it's published, it's like at the point where it's like it's this isn't. It's not finished, but it's the best that I. It's the absolute best I could do right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if Chat, whatever the AI is, is ever going to be able to do it. Is ever going to be able to really kind of like sense counter arguments mm-hmm. and sense how a f- argument could really be blown apart if it's, it's like, if you yeah. don't have it one hundred percent. I don't know how they'll capture the nuance and just the yeah the art of like deconstructing your ideas really yeah deconstructing yeah. your ideas and also i think deconstructing yourself mm-hmm. i think yeah. every great think piece i think you can tell that the writer at some point i mean i think i think you have probably written a shit think piece if at oh, the, yeah. if at <laughs> one point if one point during the writing process you didn't at one at least once say you know i might be wrong yeah <laughs> yeah you have to have that moment where you are Totally intellectually and emotionally and emotionally vulnerable, vulnerable to right. say, I might be wrong, and maybe this whole thing, the twenty five hundred words or so that I've written, is isn't right, and maybe I need to tear it down and yeah. build it back up. And like, hmm. if you haven't done that, you haven't posed that question yourself. What you probably wrote a shit thing. Yeah. Whenever I'm stuck there, there are always people I turn to, and like, I mean, it was um, Soraya McDonald, Nadia McDonald, mm. name drop alert. Um, <laughs> Pulitzer Prize um, uh, finalist for criticism. Um, I talk to her all the time, and I, her constant is like, if, if I don't have it 100%, it's not being published. Mm. And like, it has to be. That's why a great think piece writers, really good, great think piece culture writers, only write if one or two pieces a month. Yeah. Because it's like, you really, you have to put so much into it and you have to make sure it's 100%. There are a lot of ideas I've had that I had 98% and I didn't mm-hmm. pursue it because I sure. was like, I don't think I can make the 2%. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've sat through movies where I'm like, I, 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 I'm going to actually go home and try to write about this, but then if I'm not happy with it, well, I put it out into the world. I yeah. don't know. I mean, I don't want to put out something half-assed, <laughs> you know, or at least, <laughs> I don't know. It's hard. Like, for a movie that you were just in the middle on, isn't that very challenging sometimes to write about Just um like ho-hum mm, i don't know um yeah kind of sometimes yeah um but sometimes i think the uh, <laughs> i think the way i always get out of it is i just kind of cheat it and i write about me being in the middle on it <laughs> yeah no right then <laughs> right. that's just kind of it and like sometimes i think that i think that's when you can pull out the the personal bit right and you can really kind of go I think kind of like do vibe checks with the audience so mm-hmm. you know readers so to speak right where you can kind of be like at this point it felt like there was something and this point yeah. it just wasn't there and then at some point I came back and right, then it, right. you know and I remember one time when I was like I had my blog and I was experimenting um, uh, with writing at one point I did um, a review where <laughs> I did uh, this is like the nerdiest shit I'm ever going to say uh, <laughs> <laughs> But I had a grade for each section of the movie, what I felt like and oh. how like the grade like was like at the, at the first act, it was like A minus. And then at the second, it was like it dropped to a C. Sure. And then it went back up to a B and then it dropped to a D and then it <laughs> went back, you know. And then by the, by the end, it was this. Mm. And so you could almost like the reader could see in real yeah. time, like the feeling of it. Because it felt like the movie, 
and neither. It's funny That's enough, so it was the remake of Suspiria. I think I did that with. <laughs> oh yeah, because to me that's like, yeah, it does kind of like fluctuate throughout yeah. the movie where I like this part, but what was going on here? I don't know about this part. Yeah, it's there are movies that are like that where it is like tonally, it's hard to just grasp exactly what they're getting at from, you know, like every half hour or so like they just do something random or strange but like i've always been saying too because i talked to you know um eric childress and and morgan geyer who have hosted the friendship dilemma on the now playing network um they're so great and we have this argument about lynch and i always say movies don't have to make sense why well, i mean i know you want a story and i know you want a structure and i want a narrative that tells you this this is what happened here, and then, it, you know, this is the climax, and this is how it's resolved, all that. And I'm like, no, fuck with it. <laughs> you know, yeah. deconstruct it. Make it, you know, to where it's, you know, uh, based on dream logic. I'm all for it. I really want that sometimes, you know? Yeah, a movie doesn't have to logically make sense, but it should yeah. always emotionally make exactly. sense. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And to me, most of Lynch's movies, most, <laughs> make emotional <laughs> sense, you know? So that's what I'm... and. I'm just so grateful that there are very thoughtful critics out there like you um, who are giving a damn and not just like, yeah, blindly loving everything or blindly hating everything. I mean, I know Armand White gets a bad rap because he just has, quote unquote, contrary opinions to some things. But, hey, if he's being honest with his opinion, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be like, you know, let's ban him from film criticism. I will say... I know, and I would say, not to be an Armand White defender. <laughs> so, no, 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 it's okay. But early Armand White, some of the best film criticism that's ever been written. Like, top ten mm. all-time film critic. Like, you read his early stuff, and it, he, when he was on fire, it was, like, in the... To me, it was, like, him and Jonathan Rosenbaum. and yeah. like Rosenbaum. Wow. And, and yeah. Ebert, who were just, like... And Elvis Mitchell. And, and you know, there were, like, a solid, like, five or six critics who were just, like... Yeah. in the late 90s or so like really just absolutely on fire and he was yeah. one of them and when he was going he was like he was one of the best out there yeah both well to segue um both jonathan rosenbaum and armand white were fans of this particular film we're going to be discussing along with the director mr wendell b harris Chameleon Street, which tragically is the only film to be written and directed by Wendell B. Harris, joins the pantheon of the great one-and-dones in American cinema like The Night of the Hunter or Wanda. It's a film that has amused, disturbed, unsettled, and compelled me for many, many years since I first saw it. How could you not be intrigued about a film based on a real-life story of a black con man named William Douglas Street, who in the 1970s and 80s impersonated a string of different people? I had so many bruises on my face. For my next role, I had to use a little bit of makeup. Gabrielle drove me to the hospital, and it was in the hospital that one of my ideas was pushed over the edge. Let me be perfectly honest with you. Your credentials are just too amazing to believe. You know, this is the first time we've ever had an intern transfer here from Harvard Med. It's quite an honor. Well, since I mentioned Mitchell earlier, they also did a really excellent interview 
with uh, Wendell B. Harris. And within that interview, they mentioned assimilation. And that was a word that kept coming back to them when thinking about this film, particularly about how black folks in, in this country are forced to adapt in ways that, you know, I just, I, I also can't help but think about what Wendell Harris was saying, the fact that his brother spent how many years in medical school, right? <laughs> and became a doctor, of course, a very accomplished one. But let's look at the character of, of Douglas Street in uh, Chameleon Street, right? Mm-hmm. He could just walk in to a hospital. <laughs> and just perf- I mean, I'm sure he had exposure. I'm sure that you know he was well read, obviously, and didn't just like walk in and do a hysterectomy. <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's just, what does that say about America? What does that say about the state of things to where that can happen? And I'm personally fascinated by movies about liars and con men. <laughs> mm. <laughs> to some degree, it's like they, they find an art form by not being honest by creating a separate identity to where it becomes like a compulsion. I'm thinking of something even like Shattered Glass where it's just like, he knows he's caught in a lie, but he's still lying. And I find that fascinating. Like, he just won't be honest and admit to it. And of course, there's the informant, Catch Me If You Can, you know, um, that documentary, The Imposter. Like, all those I really strongly respond to. And so once I finally came around to Chameleon Street, I was just like, holy crap, why aren't people talking about this movie? You know, and why isn't Wendell B. Harris, like, yeah, uh, 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 elevated to just, like, you know, a a filmmaker that we're all thinking about in the same way we think about somebody like Spike Lee or, you know, any number of directors. And it was just funny, too, with the most recent rewatch. I was thinking a little bit of Schizopolis, and then you find out, oh, yeah, Soderbergh was an early champion (laughs) of Chameleon (laughs) Street. I think he was even at that Sundance screening. He was. Yeah, Yeah, he was. He actually actually, um, asked um, Wendell B. Harris tells a great story about um, in the Q&A, there was this guy in the back who was just kind of lobbying questions. And by the third question, he was just like... these are really good questions. You a filmmaker, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I am." Steven Soderbergh. Yeah. <laughs> Steven Soderbergh, the patron saint to all indie yeah. filmmakers. <laughs> no, and it makes complete sense why he was a fan. And I am so grateful that this movie is out now for everybody to see. What was your first experience, Robert, with seeing Chameleon Street? When and where did what, did this take place, and what were your reactions? Yeah, you know, it's um, it's interesting. I'm trying to remember the first time. I think the first time I kind of heard about it, funny enough, um, uh, you have the new release of Yay! Chameleon Street. Uh, the I Blu-ray, forgot who put it 4K. out. Who put it out? Because um, it's like, it's not um, a label uh, that I knew. Arbe- Arbelis? Arbelis. Yes. Okay. Um, and, um, and Tambi, who has a conversation with this in in, in the booklet, I guess, uh, Tambi Obitson, um, who yep. you... at used to be with IndieWire. He founded Shadow and Act with um, uh, uh, Sergio, right. Sergio Mims. Exactly. Um, and um, now has his own outlet where he, he um, Take a look at the book. Uh, talks about, um, uh, where he writes about um, African filmmaking. Um, he was tweeting about it, funny enough. Mm. And I was like, oh, this is interesting community. So I looked it up and I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. And I kind of put it out of my mind. I didn't really think about it. It's hard to it. track down on top yeah. of it. Yeah. It's hard to track down. And then um, 
I read I um in twenty twenty, um, Angelica Jade, um, a vulture, tremendous, brilliant critic. We were talking mm, yeah. on Zoom, and she had mentioned this book called Film Blackness by Michael Boyce Gillespie. And I was like, oh, I need to get that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I am I, going to read that, for yes. sure. <laughs> and I bought it, mostly because it was, um, she, I think, had she had used it in particular to write about Deep Cover, which she also covers, Gillespie. Mm-hmm. Um and then also, I was like, oh, he also does Medicine for Melancholy, which I love that film from Barry Jenkins. Of course. And then, so I bought it, and um, and he also writes about a couple other films, and, and, and including Coonskin. And, um, oh, right. Ralph Bakshi? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, and um, Community Street, I was like, well, this is the second time I've seen this. I was like, well, <laughs> I want to read the book, so I should probably, when I, I started with the Medicine for Melancholy tra- chapter, which is kind of weird, because it's the last chapter. Yeah. Um, and because I was like, oh, I've seen Medicine this would be kind of a good way to get into this. And I was like, oh, this is very academic, very brilliant, very academic. I really need to watch these films. I can't kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, like kind of vicariously kind of like leaf through it. You know, I'd really need to, 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 to watch these films. And so I was like, well, good times any watch Chameleon Street. And yeah. I found Chameleon Street. I think it was like a, a version on it, a really crappy print on Amazon Prime. <laughs> On Prime yeah, Video. I think that's how I first saw it. Yeah, yeah. a yeah. really crappy print on Prime Video, and but it was the ideas were there, the performance is there, the editing <sighs> is there. I mean, it's just a brilliant film. I remember just being just slack jawed. Yeah, <laughs> throughout it, and I was like, "Oh, this is like Catch Me If You Can, but like." infinitely smarter mm-hmm. yeah no definitely <laughs> and i like catch me if you can don't get me wrong but this and is just, just more daring as, yeah you know it's very daring very inc- just as entertaining i think yeah um but smarter like just very like the ideas that he's grappling with just really brilliant um and and so and then i read the gillespie chapter which is kind of just like the perfect reading of the film and I was just like the mm. way that Gillespie approaches it not just from um, um, Mariah I told you she's gonna laugh when she hears <laughs> this because um, I told her I was like, I'm not gonna try to copy Gillespie but I just I gotta give the man his props because like he doesn't just approach it from a standpoint of assimilate assimilation mm-hmm. he approaches it as this is a passing narrative right and this is yeah. him not just this is him passing in these professions sure. that are and in these spaces that are dominated by white people and he's not found out because he's able to mirror the mm. the the way that these white people talk the way that they move even their fashions um and it was just when i read it i was like oh my god just bomb yeah. going off in my head <laughs> and um and so yeah no so and ever hmm. since then i've been enthralled by chameleon street to the point that it was on my sight and sound ballot <laughs> it was one of the Ooh, 10 films that i put that's so great on my sight and uh, sound ballot because yeah. i was just like i think actually i think someone did like a whole like excel and i was one of three people to put chameleon oh. street on our <laughs> respective sight and sound ballot it should be making more lists but no no i mean a lot of people probably hadn't caught up with it to be honest I mean, no, I mean, and for a while it was only available in that really terrible print, yeah. and it really uh, the only people who had kind of written about it were kind of academics like Michael Boyce Gillespie and people like Tamby, right? And mm-hmm. it was, there weren't many people who had written about it. And yeah. um, this, if this, I think, if this kind of release had come out a year earlier, it might have been 
on more people's lists. Um, and um, I did play the Siskel right at, for the Black Harvest Film Festival. Last I believe year. so. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, and I um, wish I saw it on the big screen. Just, oh, and yeah. you see people's reactions throughout. You know, because it's a very funny, entertaining movie with just a lot of things to say and yes. just a lot of darkness and certainly just. Things that will make you uncomfortable, uh, to say the least, particularly a scene involving his young daughter. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that I just can't believe I'm watching as it's happening. Uh, but yeah, it's just, I don't know. There's just something about people who can't help but form these alternate identities to escape their lives, but they're doing it for a reason because there's no other way. Like, that's the thing about... I mean, especially now, I, I think um, Street is still, like, as recently as 2015 or even 2016 or something, where he's actually been caught again doing this, <laughs> doing the things that he's been doing because he doesn't know any other way. And plus, you know, he's got a record. Yeah. <laughs> so he's impersonating other people so he can actually, you know, ha have a sustainable living of some kind. But inevitably people will check in on your credentials and confirm them that's what's happened to him in the past and you know he got caught uh, yeah but it's just amazing to see the lengths that he went to you know and how he was able to pull it off and like like we've talked about assimilate and just become a part of these industries that yes are predominantly you know uh, white and just i always feel like when when i see a movie like this it, uh, you know, again, I talk about this all the time on the show, but the empathy machine, I just think of how, you know, on one hand, he's a criminal, quote unquote, by doing these things, but I understand why he's doing it. And, it's, and you, you know, you can simplistically read like, well, he's got to make money and that's why he's doing it. But I think there's more reasons than just that, to be honest. Yeah, I'm not even sure it's about the money. <laughs> yeah, he mentions it in the movie. And yeah. certainly the, you know, the the women he's with <laughs> and, you know, married to in particular, uh, will mention that like, Oh God, make some money. How yeah. are you going to make money? You know? And, uh, he certainly doesn't want to install burglar alarm systems all his life. I love his <laughs> delivery of this is boring. <laughs> this is boring. Well, There's so many great lines. He's just like tired. That. He's tired of this life of the yeah. life that he's living. And I think he's, he's tired of a life that is totally, that totally revolves around money. All his friend talks about money. Yeah, All yeah, his yeah. wives talk about money. He's he's just over it. And I think it's fascinating. I think what, the first game that he tries to pull, right, mm -hmm. um, uh, involving the Detroit Tigers baseball player, um, and he he goes on that talk show, and there's that the white journalist who's trying to get yeah. this, these hard hitting questions, trying to reveal something. And he keeps like pushing and pushing right. and pushing, and and. Street is just like, just, all this has been published. What is it? Yeah, right. And, and he pushes him. And, you know, at some point he responds with, I did it for the money. I did it yeah. for the money. And maybe that's the, because he thinks that's what he wants to hear. Too. No, yeah. And well, at the, I think the most important thing is that the reporter and all this kind of thing is trying to get this, this revelation out of him. Mm -hmm. And the biggest revelation he gets is when he calls him a liar and that cut. That he does. Yeah. That uh, that Wendell does. And you see Street's face. And he almost kind of like, there's like a beat there. And yeah, I, it's taken I a couple that. watches for me to f see that beat. That beat that he gives that really is like, 
he realized like he did lie. It wasn't. Yeah. It's not about the money. Because mm, yeah. <laughs> after that, I mean, other than that one scam, which was to get money, the rest of his scams don't involve money at all. That's true. Like, no, you're right. He yeah. go, he becomes like a, a, a goes to Yale to become a student. Mm-hmm. There's no money he's making in that. Yeah. He uh, goes to Time Magazine to interview this woman. There's he's never getting paid by Time. Right. There's no <laughs> money in that. Yeah. Like. Where in all his schemes, where exactly is the money supposed to come from? That's it, a good point. He, it's like there's there's no end game for the money. Yeah. He just he loves breaking into these spaces Systems. because yeah. he's excited by it, right? Mm-hmm. He's excited that he is in these white dominated spaces, and he's excited he can pull the wool over their eyes, right? And he gets a charge out of that. In the same way that he, and gets I get a, a charge out of watching him, yeah, <laughs> do it. In the same way that he gets a charge out of when he confronts the racist guy in the in the bar and he doesn't beat him up he like shows how intellectually superior yeah. he is to him don't you know Michelob is for white man and you know that the white man runs this world what is that what it says on the label nigga get your nasty black hands off of me he, he thinks he can just like come in here and fucking let go you know that's a very nasty word but what's really part of the expression fucked up is your grammar. Fucking let go. You can't say that. You know, the rules of grammar apply to profanity as well. The word fuck comes from the German root ficken, which means to strike. It's a verb and can be used in a variety of ways, both transitive and intransitive. For example, simple aggression. Fuck you. Or simple confusion. What the fuck is going on here? And then there's apathy. Who gives a fuck? And then there's ignorance, which is very appropriate for you. And that's what he's getting out of this. It's the intellectual game that he's getting. And that's the payment. It's not really anything to do with money. Yeah. No, I mean, like, being in that situation, just knowing he has the power of intellect and the power of words, as opposed to, like, yeah, resorting to beating him up the way the, the white guy does. You know, it's just... That's just such an unco- it's almost like a um I wouldn't say like a response but just um a subversion to some degree of the hollywoodized version of that happening in 48 hours with Eddie Murphy, you know, just like going into the redneck bar, right? And like he's conquered all and no, <laughs> you know, and everything's fine, but no, he's, you know, street still gets punched. <laughs> you know. But it's at the same time he won, you know, and, and especially in his own mind. Yeah, it's like that guy is way smarter. I mean, Street is way smarter, you know, and it's clear clear to me that throughout the entire film, he is kind of superior intellect. And listening to Wendell Harris talk, I just can't I, – I, like he does sound like an incredibly intelligent human being, like not just an artist, but just like you could see him being a professor, <laughs> you know, yeah. in real life because he's just so articulate. Well, and, and part of it, of course, of course, there's intelligence there, right? Yeah, yeah. But part of it also is that 
he's also just a great copycat because when we mm. go into his interior monologue, he sounds like a total dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> like when he's doing the, like the surgery and he's like looking at her belly button, he's like, I always prefer to Indies to Audis, you know? Like, yeah, that's true. Like, almost all of his interior monologue is he sounds like an absolute idiot, yeah. but he's able to copy these spaces. He's able mm-hmm. to copy the things that these spaces find important. Right. He's able to copy the kind of mm, status symbols, right? Mm-hmm. Right, he's yeah. able like when he talks about French, right? Like, oh, I can, I've copied the inflections very well, like, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, and like he's able to kind of just put enough of the, enough of the the set dressings mm-hmm. that people look. And we, we talked about grammar earlier, right? Yeah, and grammar being kind of bullshit, right? And part of what grammar does is that it tells people like, um, this person knows the language that we're speaking, and therefore he's part of our in crowd sure and yeah, yeah. this is the kind of like these are the kind of things we set up in order to show like what separates us from them yeah and he's able mm-hmm. to copy those things and show that these things aren't real yeah they're status symbols there's some facades yeah, yeah, right yeah, yeah. that create this kind of social class right but they're based on very kind of um um i don't want to say minuscule things but they're, they're, they're based on things that, that could be conceivably copied by anybody. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but, we all, but we sort of do think of like somebody who can perform surgery as like, yes, on a pedestal. Like, you are a superior person because you can do that. So what does that say of that, you know, he didn't have to go to medical school. He just yeah. actually did it. Street could learn in the, in the age of YouTube because everybody's got all the videos of how to do this and how to do that, you know. I mean, that's yeah. And, and so he, he has some skill that he's he's gained in mm-hmm. his life that makes it, I think, easier for him to repeat um, these these. Um, uh, what am I thinking right now? Um, repeat these 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 kind of actions, right? Yeah. That are are particular to these professions. Um, and so I think that's why I find fascinating is that like he's always kind of building it. You see, yeah. <laughs> when he goes to prison, he's you know reading books, right, to kind of gain more skill, to gain more skill, which is, which is his version of YouTube. Sure, you know? yeah, no, that's that's exactly <laughs> that's right. His yeah. version of the YouTube tutorial. And you know what's even crazy is I understand it. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, so I think there's always this sense of like he's he's showing how these like things that we have, kind of like we've put as you have to be able to do this. And, oh, because this person could do this, that means they're very intelligent. And that mm-hmm. means they're very brilliant. And that means they, they deserve this this special status, right? Yeah. But, of course, what's... I don't like that special status at all. You know, yeah. Just, I, that doesn't make sense to me. Is like the, 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 the hierarchy, the power that we attribute to people that, oh, yes, you are a surgeon, and now you are playing God. Like, even in that horrible, well, I like it, <laughs> malice with <laughs> Alec Baldwin saying, I, you think I have a God complex? Well, I am God, because <laughs> I am saving people's lives and all that. And I just, come on. Well, yeah, I, I mean, mean, you're the, smart. Don't get me wrong. The <laughs> moment where he's, he's tr- 
trying the moment he you know he uh, tries to copy being a doctor, right? Yeah. And really, what kind of gets his foot in the door, and the reason people keep kind of buying what he's saying is because he he's a Harvard man. Yeah. <laughs> he knows how to make a good resume. Yeah, he's <laughs> a Harvard man, and that that one thing alone, right, is enough that people believe, right? Yeah. It's that that one thing of he went to harvard and He's how much importance yeah and how much himself. how yeah. much importance we we put mm-hmm. on someone who goes to harvard is yeah. enough that he's able to kind of just buy his way through <laughs> yeah i know i think about that a lot I, I um my friend and former co-host patrick rapole also thinks of this of that line when he is performing surgery it's just like uh Look at the speed and dexterity of which, uh, you know, Dr. Street is performing. Or I don't know. It's not Dr. Street, but, you know, the name that he uses in that Mm -hmm. moment. And in his mind, in the interior monologue, he goes, oh, speed and dexterity. I wonder when they're going to show up. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I love things like this is a very quotable movie. There's a lot of things said in this movie. Yeah. That I'm just like, oh, that's so brilliant. And, you know, it's 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 something I think about a lot and just. um, yeah. Well, there's a lot, like I said, there's a lot of, you know, like the speed index dexterity, right? There's a lot of traits. Yes. That is being applied to him because he is a Harvard man. Mm-hmm. And I think what's fascinating, once again, to borrow from Gillespie, about <laughs> seeing this as a passing narrative is that we can also see, like, these are the traits that are affixed to white people, right? Oh, they are white. Therefore, they have they have this skill, this skill, this skill, yeah. this skill, right? Whereas if a black person did the same thing, it'd be like, Look how slow they're moving. Look how you know, um, and we see it say like in 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 um, in sports, right? Yeah. Where it's like the quarterback, the white quarterback is very studied, very right. studied. The black quarterback, very athletic, very so innate, <laughs> <laughs> so innate how he does that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and so like it's it's the traits that we assign to things because we've built we we see. Um, People through these these paradigms that, that aren't real. No, right? you know? they're not. <laughs> the, what, but just because you went to Harvard doesn't mean you're you're inherently smarter than somebody. Right. Someone could have paid your way to Harvard. You could have graduated last in your class at Harvard. Right. Well, of course. <laughs> yeah. No. You could have graduated <laughs> with a poor GPA. And then I I often think of that and I frame that with. You know, a lot of the people who experience homelessness, they, they come into library, but they're actually reading. You know, they're, I, I don't know why anybody would like suddenly go, oh, gosh, you know, they're inferior people or something. It's just not the way my mind works, you know. And, and I think that this movie sort of exposes a little bit of that, just like how we have that tendency to think of people in a box mm-hmm. and that that's the box they should be in. And here comes Street to basically say, no, that's not true at all and i'm going to prove you wrong in a way and maybe he got you know carried away to some extent but there is kind of a like i think he's really enjoying this you know through and through you know and i think that's what makes it entertaining to watch well uh, yeah and i think what's fascinating if you think about like you just kind of something that comes something that comes to my mind right you think about the end of this movie um and not to spoil the end of the movie but doesn't work out the way the first street that ends up for a lot of other <laughs> white characters, right? You think at the end of "Catch Me If You Can," "Catch Me If You Can't" ends with a, and the, uh, and the banks working for the FBI. Yes, FBI whatever. and the banks were like, yeah. "Why don't you come working? Well, come work for us," <laughs> you know? Or you yeah. think about something like 
Good Will Hunting, which is also about like, think about the box that Will has seen, and he's a janitor yeah. and stuff like that. He's so intelligent. And now all these people, let's help this man. Right. But no one ever comes, to, no one ever sees Street and says, that's impressive what you just did. Hmm. You know, why don't we give you an opportunity? Why don't yeah. we give? Why don't we put you like on the on the straight and narrow? We give you the the. No, the, we got to put you in prison. Yeah, no, that's where you belong. To, <laughs> no, we have to immediately put you in prison. Yeah, that route isn't available to street, but it is available to those white characters who mm. who, <laughs> who are imposters. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but I think like the was it the, the the Detroit Human Rights Department actually said like when he posed as an attorney. He's like, if he ever straightens out, we wouldn't mind having him back, they actually said. At one yeah. Point. Which is just, you know, it goes to show, like, hey, he was an effective worker there. He was actually capable. He was doing great work, you know, even though he didn't have the education. That's what it makes me wonder about, too, is like, you know, I don't want to come on here and say as somebody who actually really likes college <laughs> that it's <laughs> bullshit. But, you know, I can see the argument sometimes people have, especially with how much it costs in this country <laughs> to actually... Yeah, get, you know, swamped in debt. And then, you know, you put out into the world and basically said, well, now you got to pay back all that debt that you accrued in college. And, you know, hopefully it works out for you. But some people, I don't know, it's 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 incredible to watch this story unfold and also just see like, again, we talked about the overdub, uh, the narration, the internal monologue is just you know, pitch perfect, because sometimes I do fall under that unfortunate, like, Robert McKee, oh, don't use overdub narration, don't <laughs> use interior monologues, it's a crutch. But here, no, you get an, you know, an inside look as, as to how his mind works. It's yeah. similar to The Informant, again, another Soderbergh movie, that where it's like, he'll be in a meeting or something, but just thinking about something completely arbitrary, you know? Yeah, because it's not, it's not repetitive. I think, you know, the, the crutch of... of um of of um voiceover is voiceover that's when you're um yeah is when you are is when the voiceover is describing something that we could have seen or is being presently seen i don't like that right (laughs) but like i think when it's something like this where like it really is it's giving you the three dimension of the character right Mm -hmm. because if we you take away that interior monologue then it's just it's just okay street is this criminal mastermind right yeah and like no like he's just this super brilliant guy and he's he's perfect Right there's a perfection to him, but the interior monologue uh, and the, the the voiceover that we get is like he's kind of an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> he's the just kind of blagging says, his yeah. way through this, right? Yeah. And so like, and he's he's also he's scummy, mm-hmm. right? Like you know the way that he talks about women is like in the interview, the time interview where he's he's interviewing this basketball player and he's just like just thinking about like having sex with her and stuff like that, you know, and that's it. And he's just, he's just kind of scummy. And so it, it takes, it adds more flaws to the character and it takes him from what would have been this kind of guy who's like this kind of the sense of perfection about him and about the con that he's pulling of like, it adds flaws to it. It it shows like how, like, how is he fooling all these people? Like he's, he's, there's clearly a portion of the, his an, idiot (laughs) yeah it's interesting that i heard from harris i read that like a lot of uh i mean i guess streets victims would be triggered clearly watching this movie but they really felt like 
he glorified him, and I honestly don't think so. Like, I think he actually showed a lot of imperfections and really nasty character traits, like even just when he's talking to his wife and saying, like, you better not gain 50 pounds or something. Like, he's actually could be a, quite a dick yeah. <laughs> in a lot of instances and very selfish. Yeah, and I think that that comes from the way that people watch movies. People, I think, mm-hmm. confuse protagonists with, like, oh, the film's on their side. You yeah. Know? And yeah, if, like, yeah. if they have to be, like, almost a... The secondary or like a, the outright villain for you to be for mm-hmm. it to be like this doesn't glorify him and I don't think this I don't think this glorifies him at all right. I mean I think this I mean, he's there are points where he's kind of he's a piece of shit <laughs> yeah no for sure um, I mean I understand why maybe victims <laughs> you know that like oh god this guy performed a hysterectomy I mean I mean God I mean that's yeah that's still traumatizing I understand like if if they watch it and have that reaction. It's totally justified, but still. Yeah, I mean, and I do think there's a sense of him. I do think what is kind of there is one hinky part is is, <laughs> is I do think there's a sense he plays that scene, the surgery scene for comedy for laughs, and I think there is a uh, there's maybe I feel a lot maybe, of tension watching it personally. Really interesting. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, f- I feel that there's like you're, there's a because that nurse also is like looking over him like <gasps> like I mean I. I know. He's, yeah, I've she's seen breathing it. really hard. Yeah, right? yeah. I think it's maybe the nurse even feels like something's not right here, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and of course, he doesn't. He doesn't get like scolded, mm-hmm. right? And I think there's that. And, and You're maybe, kind of expecting that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think there is. I, I think it, it, there is a part, portion that is played for laughs. I think a lot of those women probably wanted some portion, one moment where he gets scolded, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's not that kind we of movie. We don't get that, yeah. You know, and it's kind of su- surprising to me how he just stumbles into these things. Like we don't actually see, like, oh, this is exactly how he became this profession. Sometimes we're just like thrown in there. No, yeah, he know? just kind of pick. He's he's picked it up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> basically, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's you know, he's it's interesting how he does that though throughout the film, and it's great. It's great editing, right? Oh yeah, we start with the the scam. spend a lot of time editing this movie. Yeah, <laughs> we, we start with the the first scam where he with the with the baseball player where. He goes almost step by step of like we see how I got mm-hmm. into this. Then we see the second scam, which is the the Time Magazine scam, where it's a we yeah. see a little bit less. We mm-hmm. just know that it's a letter. Then we see the third scam, which I think is the hospital one, where it's a little bit less. It's, yep. it's just the um um uh I went to Harvard, right? And and we see less and less and less of how he's getting into these situations True. as we're going as we're going on because we, I mean. It's because uh, Harris trusts the audience, right? That to the audience to see. Yeah. yeah, we see him do it a couple of times. We don't need to see the step by step every single That's time. That's true. I mean, he did say that he had like a maybe a two hundred page script to start. <laughs> 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 so, like, I don't know. There could have been a three hour cut. Who knows? But uh, probably not necessary at all. Like, it's just I think that would be superfluous footage, probably. But still, it's because it's yeah. so tight. You know, I gotta think uh, if if anything, what was probably the two uh, majority of the two hundred pages had to be about the um, his family that gets mm. it's at the very beginning and it kind of gets dropped. Yeah, I mean, you never does. see the family ever again. You never see the little the the, the brother who like right. chews too loudly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna sneeze. <laughs> I'm gonna sneeze. <laughs> <laughs> you never see the dad again. Yeah. You don't really see any of those characters again for the rest of the film. I feel like mm-hmm. there must have been more of that, and there must have been more with his buddies. Sure, 
Those, and, that's such great footage. I yeah. Mean, just like them hanging out at the bar. Yeah. I love oh, it's, it's, it's such great footage. I love the way in those early scenes where he's with his friends and they're talking about like, we need money, we need money, right? Mm-hmm. And the way that he frames, one, the way that he frames, right, where he's just barely in the frame. Yeah. He's just, the lighting is just... Yeah, and then, so the, and then later obscured. on, he, he's totally obscured yeah, in the lighting. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. almost completely in the shadows, right? And right. I, this idea that he's just like kind of... A, this elusiveness to him, right? And not just this elusiveness to him, but also this um, this this idea that he's you, you can't totally know him. Um, yeah. And you, you can't really totally pin, pin him down morally. You can't mm-hmm. pin him down. And it's... it's that's some Orson Welles-like lighting yes. to do things like that. <laughs> and clearly, he, that's how Harris started. Like, he just one day had the epiphany and just was like, watch, similar to you, watching movies with his dad and saw some like Cagney films and just went, oh my God, movies are, that's, that's, I, that's all I want to be a part of now. I don't want to see everything and I want to be a part of that world. So on one hand, like this does feel like the ultimate Wendell B. Harris movie, but at the same time, I'm like, I want more. I'm like, uh, I want to see what other things he could have done. You know, because this is so assured in a way, you know, and, and yet it's like you can say that it's indicative of that time of that in, in, indie film movement, of course, you know, around like when Spike Lee was about to emerge and things like that. It just feels like at the same time, I f- he has so much confidence in telling this story that it just feels, you know, more assured than a lot of debuts. I mean, I, I read a couple of reviews that were just like, oh, I can't wait to see what he does next based on this, because it has a lot of blemishes or things that don't quite work. And I'm like, no, the whole thing works for me. <laughs> you know, like it, it, it's actually consistent. I mean, you could maybe say like he can't keep up the pace or, you know, towards the end, like it sort of slows down a little bit, but it, I don't feel it. I, I think it's pretty close to being perfect. <laughs> yeah. You know, especially upon like you mentioned before we recorded multiple viewings. I think this movie, you'll want to watch it again when it's over. I mean, that's the first feeling I had when I, when I first watched it. It's like, I can't wait to watch this again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely a film that was just way too smart for its own so. good. And I think in, in a way that wasn't... They wanted to dumb it down. They actually wanted to remake it almost like a, a year after it was done. Yeah, I mean, it, it reminds me a lot of like around that same time, like... Julie Dash, right? With Daughters of the Dust, yeah. right? Where Daughters of the Dust is a very intelligent film, but Absolutely. it's almost way too intelligent for anyone back then, yeah. right? And yeah. it's just the way that that those films, I think, that are dealing with race, not through the not in proximity necessarily to. Um, to whiteness, mm-hmm. right? Um, and to a point, this is, of course, with the assimilation and the passing narrative and stuff like that. Yeah. But, um, but I think it's it's not it it ex- it's it's not engaging. I think whiteness in the sense of like you are a necessary appendage to this story, and I think that mm-hmm. that is the, the a lot of the films that really did well in and particularly in the 90s right there's like there's like black people and bad whitey right yeah <laughs> um, and much in the same way of like you know like you look at the um 
19, you know, black exploitation stuff of the 1970s, right? I think this film, like, ha- and stuff like Daughters of Dust has more in common, say, with something like um, Ganja and Hess, right? Sure. Where Ganja and oh, Hess yeah. really mm-hmm. exists in its own world. Yeah. And, like, whiteness really doesn't ev- come into it, it that yeah, yeah, much, yeah. right? And there's a reason Gaja and Hess wasn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like was obscure for a while. Um, and those, the films that tend not to center whiteness tend to, the, the black films that tend to, to not center whiteness tend to be the ones that get forgotten. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I just, but even around that time, I think of, was it like even just a few years later, something like Boys in the Hood comes out and becomes a sensation and everybody's talking about it. But it it just it, it sort of focuses on like the idea of gangs and violence and that's our perception and you know like certainly unfortunately a lot of, a lot of white people would focus on that negative energy of that era and that time and that place of South Central LA as being scary and dangerous and oh my God yeah. you know to, and that it's kind of unfortunate like those are the films that really struck a chord as opposed to something like Chameleon Street that shows a whole yeah. other different perspective what's well, familiar yeah I mean it's familiar yeah. so I'm like oh I, I see this on my TV all the time right right you know like, on the on local the news, news. Yeah. yeah yeah. whereas like something like this like a black guy it scared who, people I think yeah. it scared people I think <laughs> it scared executives yeah a black guy who's like going through these different professions and stuff like that yeah. especially at the time where like the closest thing you got to seeing and actually I think that predate it? I'm trying to think about the years of the Cosby show. Mm, I don't, I don't, I'm trying to remember when that first emerged. Um, Maybe like late 80s or was it more mid 80s? I think it was late 80s. Late, late 80s. I think, I think so. Yeah, I think that's right. I think they're about contemporary. Yeah. You know? but, okay, but like the only example you had, like a, one of the few examples you had of a black doctor was like Huxtable, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the idea of like a black doctor Oh, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a black yeah. per, black person at Yale? Oh, that's, right. that's weird. That, that would never happen, right? And so I think there's this sense of the way that he's approaching this story is a sense it's was totally out of like the realm of possibility for white folks in the late 80s and people didn't get it. Yeah. People didn't get it. It wasn't approachable. It wasn't, give me my gangs. Give me my slave movies. Get That's it. That's all I understand about black people. <laughs> yeah, that's so sad. But it's also, I don't know, like, ahead of its time, to be sure. But just in terms of style and, you know, just the way he's telling the story. We talked about the editing. I, I'm kind of just floored by a lot of the choices that he made and certainly lingering on some really creepy moments like we talked about with the daughter and just, like, how, you know, it's like it almost becomes a little mini horror movie in that moment. You know, it's just like really scary. For, even though you know, okay, he's not going to actually kill her, but just you know, still, it's just the way he plays it in that moment. And a lot of it is just about acting. You yeah, know? <laughs> and well, no, the art of acting. You know, it's yeah. I mean, it's a it, this is a film that is to, it, it is a um, film that is totally about performative being mm-hmm. performative and performance right and it, that scene is like i think it's almost like it's funny because i think that's probably the scene that most viewers will have trouble with but he's almost like beating you over the head uh, yeah. you know he like puts on a mask he put, does this like scary uses, voice the scary voice the play knife and yeah. the play blood and you know he's holding his daughter you think he's gonna slit her throat but like it's all part of the play uh, yeah. right and it's 
And it's also, of course, like the, the pent up frustration of him being in this family life that he doesn't want to be in. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. <laughs> and so he, he goes to, to the most doing what he does best. Yeah. And he goes to the most extreme version of play because he is so it's so pent up in him. Yeah. To, to want to leave. Um, and so, like, it's... So the scene is a great, like, performative response, but it's also a great emotional response, too. Um, and, and yeah, it's just... It's... The, the level of, like, craft and the storytelling and the way the things are working thematically on multiple levels is just amazing here. It is. And to me, like, watching the movie, it, it does feel like a calling card for Wendell B. Harris as being, you know, kind of a jack of all trades, look at all the talent he has on display as an actor, as a writer, as a director. He also and edited. Be, and edited, yeah. yes, of course. All these things is just it does feel like an Orson Welles like kind of debut. And I I hate to think like why when somebody even like Spike Lee got involved at one point, did he not get a career you know like why i mean again i'm sure hollywood was just like nope closing doors to his ideas left and right but he deserved so much more than just like oh like he had two acting roles and one was like very you know small and out of sight and another was in road trip of all things which makes me wonder was tom green a fan (laughs) of chameleon street which i could see why how he could be because he was also interested in fucking with people (laughs) you know in more of like a reality show kind of context but still it's just yeah i mean there was a run in the early late 80s early 90s of uh of black films that Played at Sundance, did really well at Sundance. Yeah, and then those hanging cr- with the homeboys is a great one. I really like that one. Yeah, and there's um, what, what, it just came out. Oh, Alma's Rainbow. God Almighty. Oh, Put- that's right. Okay. Yep. 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 Yeah, Alma's Alma's Rainbow. Yeah, okay. the that was. Um, that, I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, it's it's great. It's fantastic. Um, but yeah, no, there was there was a string in the early '90s of of films like. Chameleon Street, like Almost Rainbow, that came and did really well at the festival circuit and then just disappeared. You never mm. heard from those filmmakers ever again. They're only now starting to be kind of rediscovered. Um, I'm just, Same with Wendell B. Harris. He's just sort of getting a renaissance a little bit. I mean, just like uh, people are interested in him now <laughs> more than ever. And I don't know if it's just because like people are catching up with Chameleon Street. But yeah. He's just got some wild ideas that I hope come into fruition. He is actually working on a podcast miniseries of all things. Oh, interesting. Oh, you know, another film that falls under that is Compensation. I don't know if you've seen Compensation. Sounds familiar. Yeah. um, uh, Zenobu. uh, uh, Zenobu Davis, I want to say. And that film, it's a Chicago film, actually, funny enough. Oh, really? Yeah. I definitely want to watch that. Um, And it it employs, like, silent film technique, and and it's one of the first, like, kind of... um, um, it uses inner titles and stuff like that, and uh, it is yeah, one of the first great. films I've seen that like uses um, uh, ASL really well. Hmm. Um, and it's it's a film way ahead of its time. Ninety nine, wow. Yeah, way huh. ahead of its time, and it's it's amazing. And it's confronting the uh, HIV AIDS crisis as well in the oh. black community, and it's. It's a tremendous film. Um, people haven't seen Compensation. Go see Compensation. I, I think for a time it was available on Criterion Channel. I don't think it's available there anymore, but there's a copy. Um, I think it's... Um, 
was it women make films i want to say has a oh okay copy of it um that's kind of Kind of janky. Kind of looks like it was like burned on a DVD ROM real quick. Oh, but, <laughs> but <laughs> those are still out there. You know? But I mean, they do great work. They do great work by by they they do women make films. Just um, um, have a great library of of hard to find films by women um, that I highly recommend perusing. Um, and so yeah, so I mean, compensation was even though it came ten years later. Dry Long So I think came around that time, nineteen ninety eight. Um, that's only just now started getting Criterion release. Oh, cool. Um, but there was like a, a span of like a certain kind of black film. I think for a little over a decade, that if if it didn't center whiteness at all, like, those directors kind of disappeared, mm-hmm. and and no one no one heard of them again. Oh, that's. I think it just frustrates me. I mean, there's even like a slew of just like independent films that got swept under the rug throughout the throughout the 90s that I just sort of like rented on a whim and go oh this is so good why aren't people talking about this movie you know a lot of them were coming of age stories but still I just kind of went they deserve more recognition and more attention but I think because they didn't get that they sort of just give up you know and quit I mean even somebody like Allison Anders I think she's still working today more or less but certainly because they you know Something like Gas, Food, and Lodging should have really taken off in the same way that a lot of independent films of that time, you know, didn't. I mean, they it did, and then she didn't get the same level that, like, oh, you're Kevin Smith or you're Richard Linklater got and everything. But, you know, I think that I, I, I hope that in this day and age, now that we have access to everything, people can, you know, find these types of hidden gems and there are ways to find them. Yeah. I mean, like I said, these I mean, releases like this like boutique and cri- labels are doing yeah, great work. Criterion has, has put out some, some of that stuff as well. Um, dry long. So, um, and like a couple other films I'm blanking on right now, but they've, they've been on a good run of like finding some of the more obscure kind of like late eighties, early nineties stuff. Um, yeah. The incredibly out. true adventures of two girls in love was one of those titles where mm-hmm. I saw that and I rented it and I was like, Oh, this is so sweet. And, Oh, but not a lot of people are, know about this movie, and then now it's being, you know, re-released, and thankfully people can check that one out. And yeah, I think of titles of that era where I just go, "Damn it, why aren't people seeing this one or know about it as much?" You know? Yeah, I was just um, um, was it just another girl on the IRT? Yeah, you know, it was exactly. another one. That's you know? another one. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, there's all these films are, are coming back, and I'm I'm glad you know that this one in particular is coming back. I think Community Street's actually on criteria. It's still on criteria. I yeah, channel. it has been. Um, I watched it earlier. <laughs> today right <laughs> um, um he's had a couple of short films i think you mentioned they might even be on here or i don't know if they're short the, features, i think they're more but... i think they're like from when i was reading up i was reading about i think colette vignette okay. more like kind of like studies um oh interesting so like it's like what's described here harrison's award-winning 1986 short feeling com- featuring chameleon streets colette hayward haywood um and so i think there's, there's almost kind of like what are like studies? Um, yeah. Um, oh, the reason like, why we didn't also mention a lot of the cast is because this was the only movie they were in. <laughs> yeah, a lot of them. Yeah, this is the only thing they were in. Like East, yeah. East Bayou has one of those. Oh. Um, where they, there's she has a short called Doctor Something. It's like the character Samuel Jackson plays, but it's like played by somebody else um, who's actually a well-known actor. I'm blanking out right now. But anyways, um, but it was like a kind of like proof of concept kind of short kind of study. Um, and I think she had said that. Um, uh, uh, Casey uh, Clemens, Clemens um, had when I interviewed her talked about that like she basically did it because hmm. the studio was like we don't think this is gonna work and someone was like we should she probably do like a 
proof. And then she showed him, and we're like, oh, I think this yeah. will work. <laughs> yeah. That was a title, again, because of Ebert. I sought out. Yeah. I was so glad that I did. I saw it in the theater, which is like, damn. Uh, there's Yeah, there's certain movies of that time where I just kind of, I feel grateful for film critics because they told me about them. You know, like yeah. Rosenbaum or uh, Dave Kerr for a while was just somebody that I, you know, gravitated towards because I usually agreed with him. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, and a lot of the the L.A. Rebellion filmmakers really needed that boost. You yeah. Know, um, like uh, Oh, uh, even Carl Franklin, like we talked about in the last episode, One False Move, you know? That, yeah. That really got a lot of attention thanks to Siskel and Ebert. Yeah, I think it's also like, um, was it Billy Woodbury, um, mm. um, Bless Their Hearts, Bless Their Little Hearts, oh, um, right. which is yeah, a yeah, great yeah. film. Um, and then, of course, most of... Most of uh, Charles Burnett's films, unfortunately, like, you know, Killer yeah. Sheep needed that comeback, and My Brother's Wedding needed that comeback, mm-hmm. and and um, it's only recently To Sleep With Anger, people have been talking about To Sleep With Anger yeah, again. Yeah, thank you, Criterion, for that, too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so, like, um, you know, for, like, someone like Charles Burnett, like, it took, like, a decade and a half from really, yeah. to, I think, 2007 or so, when Milestone started putting out his films and stuff for him to kind of get that recognition that, that eventually led to him getting an honorary Oscar, you know? And, yeah. But a lot of the, the, the LA rebellion filmmakers like Julie Dash and, and, and a few other people really needed that, that boost from, from critics and, and not just from critics, of course, but from like boutique labels and, oh, pe- sure. you know, places like milestone and places like grasshopper and stuff like that. There are so many great boutique labels putting out amazing things this year alone that I'm just kind of like in awe of just like even that Texas Chainsaw Massacre box set. I think Ooh. it's Radiance Films. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, there's just, I don't know how they're doing this. Or the, there's Second Sight. There's Radiance. There's obviously your Vinegar Syndrome and like all these things. How are they doing it? It's amazing. It's, it's <laughs> like movies amazing. I haven't thought about in a long time are coming out. And it's amazing. Nerds like us are thrilled. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I don't have enough money to buy it all. I know that too. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, I guess I could be one of those uh, critics that just like says, "Hey, send me some free stuff, and I'll review it on the podcast." But I don't know. I don't. Sometimes like, I'll do that. Yeah, no, no rightfully <laughs> so, so. Sometimes I'll be. I'll be, uh, if it's a, like a Criterion release, I'm like, yeah. Shoot, I really want this Criterion release. I'll, I'll hit up somebody and be like, let me review this just so I can get the copy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and a couple of times I've hit up. Very rarely, though. Very rarely I pull, the, pull out the card. But once in a while I'll be like, hey, I really like this title. Can I? Yeah. Can you send me a copy just for my own perusal? <laughs> <laughs> well, to, to wrap up the Wendell B. Harris discussion, I am going to be def- – I'm definitely going to be linking in the show notes to a couple of uh, – interviews that he's done because I just love listening to that man's voice um, and hearing some stories firsthand that he's told and you did a great interview with him uh, Mitchell did a great interview it's just Mariah also did a very oh, really? good interview with him yeah yeah, yeah. that's wonderful oh um, my gosh she, I'll just inter- yeah I'll just link to all you all of you that yeah she asked <laughs> she she asked about some of his um, um, TV writing that he did early in his oh, career, and he he lit up have, about it. <laughs> yeah, I must have missed that because I don't know if I saw that in other interviews or not. Yeah, Mariah was like, Mariah does. For oh, anyone yeah. who doesn't deep know, she dives. does deep research. Yes, hundred oh, <laughs> percent. Deep, deep, deep research, and she was just like, oh yeah, he was right about this. I was like, how do you know this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that he's got projects in the works. I hope they actually come into fruition and we get to experience them. Even if it's just a podcast, I'll anything he's a part of, I will absolutely support. Yeah, I mean, and hopefully, you know, who knows? Hopefully, 
one day somebody just kind of writes him a blank check and just like, yeah, here, do he, it. So he whatever, it. whatever you got, just do it. You right. know? Um, yeah, it's 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 insane. Quit giving many... all the money to Zack Snyder and yeah, you know, give it, and all give these it to somebody Marvel like people. him. Yeah. Or like, oh, like you know who's another guy who Theodore Witcher who made Love Jones. Oh God, I love Love Jones. Yeah, that's so his much. only film. Oh, and it's just like, how did that? That that's oh. one of those appro- absolutely. Appro- how did that man not get another no film? Shit. <laughs> yeah, I love that movie. <laughs> how did he not get another movie? Like, just one of the great. Like romances of all time, hundred percent. Um, so well shot, great Chicago film too. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, and fell in love with Neil Long. Yeah, who, who, who of, wouldn't? A <laughs> lot, lot of great Midwestern people we're talking about on this show. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, gosh, now I want to rewatch Love Jones. <laughs> oh, Love Jones is fantastic. Have you seen the uh, the Criterion release of it? I haven't yet. The no. transfer is fantastic. It really brings out the Reds. Mm, well, the November, Reds are November gorgeous. Time, yeah, well, next Criterion sale. I'm picking mm. that one up. <laughs> Much I, better than. The, uh, the version, the well, really the, janky version. The last fine. Criterion sale, I, of course, you know, splurged on to sleep with anger because I'm like, we're going to talk Charles Burnett. But I just wanted to really focus uh, because good timing with this Chameleon Street Blu-ray coming out, you know, and I really wanted to highlight just how strongly I felt about this movie. Yeah. And you're obviously a fan. But next time, I'd say it's just going to be as early as the springtime after like we get through the winter. Um, I want to do Charles Burnett with you. <laughs> so oh, much. yeah. I just interviewed Charles Burnett, and I've got so many thoughts, especially about how like the first, his first three films, it's particularly My Brother's Wedding to, to Sleep With Anger. Mm-hmm. Those films are really companion pieces. Yeah. yeah. No, Very I don't fascinating. Doubt it. Yeah. And I'm curious about his, uh, what was the, was it the Glass Castle or not Glass Castle? What's the one? Glass, the glass Shield. shield. Yeah, yes. Glass Shield. Yeah, yeah, Glass Shield. I'm a little curious about that because that seems like a little bit, uh, I wouldn't say out of his wheelhouse, but something like an outlier maybe. But It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. It was like he, um, um, I don't say it was like a close thing he's ever made to like a prototypical studio film. Yeah, that's it's the closest thinking. thing he's ever made to, I think, yeah, to a prototypical studio film. I'm always interested when that happens <laughs> to independent filmmakers. Just like, oh, I'm going to try my hand and see what happens with this. And Yeah, and sometimes you get great. Like, with Spike. Sometimes. Spike. Yeah. I mean, well, Spike, it's gone two different ways. His, his old boy remake, contrary Ugh. to what Richard Brody... Richard Brody thinks that Spike's old boy is better than the original old boy. He's drunk. Yeah. <laughs> and Something's each time I'm just like, wow. I, no. Or you might get the other side where Spike does Inside Man, and oh, Inside so Man's good. perfect. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, no, Spike Lee, again, one of our greats. <laughs> but he's definitely greats. had some flops. Yeah, I mean, how do you, I, since you're here, how do you feel about Bamboozled? Because I've always been so torn about that movie. That's one of those where you talked about, like, going from A to C, then to B, and then back to, I don't know. Bamboozled <laughs> is the second film 
I mentioned on this on this actually it was a third film because Killer of Sheep was on my was on my sight and sound as well and so wow. was Bamboozle wow. Bamboozle was on my sight and sound ballot um, I think it's brilliant I think it's a masterpiece I think okay. it's one of the great films Spike Lee's ever done Damn. second only to Crooklyn I think Crooklyn's his best film um, but I think Bamboozle's amazing um, and okay it's, I'll watch it again yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean you're not the only person who doesn't like it uh, Odie Odie Henderson does not like Bamboozle mm. I know a few people who don't like Bamboozle I, I think the digital aesthetic I don't know th- there's I felt that way around that time, and certainly even when Michael Mann was doing it as recently as Public Enemies, I'm like, mm, I don't know why I don't like the look of this. <laughs> well, I think what's fascinating is that... He bought the cameras at Best Buy or something to yeah. bamboozled. <laughs> I think what's interesting is that, like, Spike... Spike's one of those directors who has, like, um, team, a team, mm. right? And, yeah, like, yeah. I think it's... He's had different iterations of his team, I think like Bamboozled is almost like the peak of that team, right? He had um, Sam Pollard back to edit, um, which that beautiful montage at the end is one of the most brilliant and heartbreaking things I've ever seen. It's just incredible. He had Terrence Blanchard really like they've gotten used to each other. He had Ruthie Carter. I mean, it was like his team was like locked and I think you feel it. And I think it's, it's the kind of thing you make when it, when you have a locked team, because you feel like you can take that mm-hmm. big of a swing, it's just such it a, is a big of a swing. It yeah. is. It's almost like his Chameleon Street. <laughs> yeah, it's no, it's 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 no, it's also one of those films that is about mask and it's oh, about sure. performance. And yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah. I think that's a really good comp, right? And Chameleon Street are are you could be a fat it'd be a fascinating um, comparison to do to write that kind of piece. Um, and and Bamboozle, I mean, the way that it's. Sh- Way that it's shot, I think, is, is particularly when it switches to film during mm. the performance. Yeah, is yeah. that's true. Immaculate, and I, I love everything about that film. And that film, it's not a perfect film. It's no. like one of like people. I think people confuse masterpiece with perfection. I think it's one of the, that's one of those great examples of why it is an imperfect masterpiece. But goddamn, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, when somebody feels passionate about it, I mean, that's I love that because then it makes me want to rewatch it because. Sometimes years later, years past, you go, oh, wait a minute. This is very different than what I thought when I first saw it. Like, I was, in a, whole, I was a whole different person when I first saw that in the theater. Yeah. You know? when, when I, it's funny. So, um, um, And plus, when you frame it in context of their career, too, that can also be a factor. Yeah. And, like, the, I love the crowd scenes. I love the, the fact that he, he did not tell that those were actual live audiences. Mm. They did not know they were going to see blackface. Wow! So the, the wow. reaction shots and <laughs> captures are real, oh and it's God. just incredible. And I, you know, everything that from from the from uh, was it Honeycut the MC, who you know, um, niggas, it was a beautiful thing. But <laughs> <laughs> um, the Alabama roots is the Alabama porch monkeys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Paul Mooney showing up, like it is just, it's just a. Heavy hitters all around. It's just incredible. Yeah, I, I think it was like, was it his intention to basically make his own kind of network? That was. Oh like, yeah, no, yeah. yeah, it was. Yeah, it was definitely his intention yeah. to make his own his own network and yeah. his own face in the crowd as well. Right, face in the crowd. Yeah, yeah that's another one for sure. Um, yeah. and, and it's just, I mean, it's, it's it's interesting because it really is kind of the movie that he almost like. It was such a big miss. He almost didn't come back from it. Yeah, I remember <laughs> you know? that. Yeah, <laughs> um, and he had to kind of. 
you know, he he did. I think what she hate me, and then girl sit. I mean, no, girl yeah, sit before, when we were but like, she hate oh, me. I don't know about um, oh, and no. he did um um. Oh, uh, Miracle of St. Anna, which doesn't work. Um, oh, right, yeah. But then he did Inside Man, and I kind of brought him back, and 25th Hour, and I brought him back, Oof. and stuff like that. Yeah, 25th um, Hour. 25th still. Hour might be actually just right after, now that I think about Bamboo. Still my favorite. Yeah. But I mean, like, do the right thing, too. <laughs> it's like the, I don't know if it's like this, that's the cliche answers at this point, but like, yeah, 25th Hour, do the right thing, are my favorite Spike Lee movies. Uh, Cro- but I, I mean, Crooklyn, I should also see on a big screen, too. I they really just showed it at the Music Box a couple months ago, actually. Uh. Uh, uh, like in 35 or something like that and Crap. it was wonderful to see I was that. I think um, um, uh, there are a few people there who had not seen it mm-hmm. before and it was just the more I see it the more I th- I actually think and this is controversial I think uh, the the People think that people always say that Malcolm X is his best, the best use of the double dolly. I just think Crooklyn has the best use of the double dolly when she's floating up to the yep. sky. Yeah, I think yeah. it's that's gorgeous. Yeah, I think it's that and controversially enough red hook summer is also that is controversial (laughs) one of the best uses of the double dolly like Mm. it's in this top three like home and domingo is in it and i think it's revisit it's the way that okay so he do you know where the double dolly partly comes from i think so i should know this it's uh, Mario Van Peebles. Yes, okay. Story of a right. three-day pass. Um, yes, and yes. And he, I think, Spike, as great of a director as Spike has done, he is, he's never matched to how good that one is. Because mm-hmm. it's just so, it's, when he walks into the bar and Story of a three-day pass, and that double dolly happens, and you see the crowd and the way the white people are looking at him and reacting. I think the best uses of his double dolly tend not to be singular. Malcolm X is one of the very few exceptions, right? I think his best uses of double dolly tend to have enveloped the entire environment and the extras and the people. and, and, And it gives a sense, the full sense of not just the interiority of what's happening with the character, but the exterior of what's happening to them as well. And Red Hook Summer does that really well, and so does Crooklyn as Mm -hmm. well. Um, And um, I actually think those, it's Malcolm X, Crooklyn, and Red Hook Summer, the top three double dollies. Wow. We should just do a whole podcast on that. (laughs) (laughs) Or the segue shots he does. I don't know. (laughs) The the first half of, of, of Red Hook Summer doesn't work. The second half is tremendous, I mm-hmm. think. Some of his best filmmaking. I should watch that again, too. Yeah. I, <laughs> I was like, eh, it's all right. <laughs> but I don't know. I I guess the only Spike Lee movie I was like, I, I really didn't care for at all was Girl 6. And maybe oh. it's because at one point, like, Quentin Tarantino shows up or something. I like, love oh, no. Girl 6. Yeah? I really love Girl 6. I think it's been, like, a really big influence for, for quite a few black women filmmakers, like mm-hmm. uh, uh, Numa Perrier's uh, Jezebel. Oh, okay. Is a yeah. direct. She's talked about like how Girl Six is deeply. Really? Deeply, yeah. That's another one I guess to reevaluate. I don't know. <laughs> Interesting. Have you seen Jezebel? Uh, no. No, I would suggest she. Once you see Jezebel, you're like, oh yeah, this is Girl Six. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. she, she was definitely influenced by Girl Six, and I think Girl Six is. Also, a very interesting. Again, I saw it at a time when I wasn't the cinephile that I am, so maybe I'll find other things to appreciate about it now. What I appreciated about it is that it's it's much like Chameleon Street. To talk this back to Chameleon Street, please. It's about a black woman who's really going into these white spaces, and the only way Mm. she can imagine herself in these white spaces, like there's like these references, like she's Foxy Brown. She's is that she can only imagine it if she's playing like a movie character or something like that. Um, Mm. 
it's it's fascinating the way that it approaches sex work feels very ahead of its time sure um it's it's i think it's a really good film but i think it's it's like due for a comeback now the problem is that it's like hard to find you can't even that's true you can't find yeah. it on vod maybe that's why i haven't revisited yeah. it since <laughs> i think because spike it might not be a big fan of it and i think also maybe susan laurie parks who wrote it may not might not be a big fan of it mm. and maybe or maybe they might have better feelings about how it was received yeah but um uh, but um but i think it's a it's a great film and it's a film that i think i think it's his film of everything in his filmography that is primed for a comeback is girl six Okay. <laughs> What's, what, what, what do you think is his weakest film then? Pro- I didn't like the uh, what do you call it the the Ganja and Hess remake he did. Oh, that one. I think that's. I think it's probably his weakest one because I think yeah. there's nothing particularly interesting in it. Right. Oh, I, and the old boy remake. Yeah. yeah. At least the old boy remake. There's. He shouldn't just do remakes then. <laughs> the, uh, there's some. There's at least he's trying a little something. And he was trying to tie it yeah. into nine eleven a little bit. Oh and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember I, that. Yeah. I mean, I think I think the. Um, it's the sweet blood of Jesus. That's what it is. That's sweet, the, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I, I just don't think it's particularly interesting. I don't right. think it's. I think it's a pale imitation of the other of, of the, of the other one uh, of of Ganjan Hess. I don't think it's shot particularly well. I don't think it's. I don't think anything. Of, I don't think any of it works. Right. I don't think any of it works. I think Ganja Hess is a masterpiece. Leave it alone. Yeah. No. <laughs> don't. Yeah. It's, I don't know why somebody's like sometimes remakes. I'm like, why? <laughs> it's it's the one time where I think he doesn't. It's the one time where I don't think it's an interesting failure. At least mm-hmm. it's it's just a failure in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. So sorry, Spike. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I know he's listening. <laughs> oh, Spike. You know, we love you. <laughs> and Wendell B. Harris, thank you for making this incredible film, if you're listening. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so what's what's uh, been going on? Any pieces coming up? Well, you got a lot of festival coverage coming up in the fall, without a doubt. You know, TIFF. Yeah, a lot of TIFF stuff. Yeah. Already, I've already started watching screeners for TIFF. Oh, exciting. Mariah and I have already broken into them. We've, I think we've already watched three films for TIFF. Jeez. Wow. <laughs> we're, we're it's, happening. it's the end of September already, right? When, when does it start? It's be September 7th. Oh, wow. Gosh. So it's three, three, uh, less than three weeks, wow. actually. About two and a half weeks, I think. Um, it's <laughs> up on me. It really is right around the corner. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've seen some TIFF stuff about three uh, three films already. I've already gotten my, some of my assignments. Um, and, you know, working working on some other stuff returning back to my old stomping grounds of IGN I used to write for IGN quite a bit oh, back wow. in the day quote unquote back in the day which was like three years ago um, <laughs> and uh, returning to those uh, have some stuff coming out on Mashable have a few things coming out for Ebert per usual of um, yeah that's great have a couple of things for New York Times as always. Ah, um, that's awesome. <laughs> I just yeah. did. Um, I have a, as you know, a monthly uh, action streaming column for the New York Times. It's just funny enough, finished watching some stuff for that this afternoon. Um, have a couple of reviews for them as well. You know, Excellent. so uh, it's really busy. It's kind of weird because I've been trying during when whenever I'm on the precipice of a festival, what I have to do is I have to in order to do the festival. There's some under the hood stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is that the reason I'm able to write about like 20 films out of a festival is that I spend probably about two and a half weeks doing a whole month's worth of work. Oh, wow. To get ahead of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you're not binging it all and then writing it all, all yeah. at once. And yeah. then, so that way, I have a couple of weeks before the festival to get screeners, write about those sure. screeners, think about those films. And so that when I actually get on the ground at the festival, I might only only be writing about eight movies. Wow, <laughs> that's good then. No, that's 
planning ahead and not overwhelming yourself. Because to me, that's what it always feels like when I see festival coverage. I feel like I might just like implode. That seems like <laughs> I don't know. It seems like it's way too much to take in all at once, you know. And that's, well, then also you also just want to like I don't want to be working the entire time out yeah, there. I want to yeah. I want to take risk. I want to find the film that sure. like maybe X Outlet doesn't care about this. I've had a moment where I've seen a film and I went to an editor. And I was like. There's this film I just watched. You gotta let me review it. I, That's so cool. We really needs to push or something like that, you know. And I'll do that. And you know, um, and I'll have editors who we get to the toward the end of the festival. Like, do you see anything you were passionate about? And I'm like, I saw this. And they're like, yeah. cool, do it. That's so good. Yeah, we need we need voices like yours out there in the world to tell us what's great. <laughs> you know, because again, it, I worry that like it's getting lost in a sea of content, you know, like not your work, but certainly just in general, whether if it's podcast, whether if it's writing, it's just like all out there in the world now. And yeah. I, I don't want it to get lost in the shuffle of just, you know, well, the hard part about being a critic is that like, you know how filmmakers will sometimes say like, this is one for me, one for them or two for, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. two for them, one for one for me or something like that, you know, for critics, it really is like, this is like, 20 for them that to pay my bills and there's like one yeah <laughs> one for me that's like a passion one i'm like okay i can get behind this one and push sure. it you know and it's, oh yeah and so yeah you just try to have as many kind of bullets in the chamber when you get to a festival as you can so that way yeah. your things aren't lost in the, in the there's so many films i've seen at a festival that like i i've just been like what happened to that movie Oh yeah, you know what I? I, I'm sure I love that's that happened. movie. Yeah. You know, those are documentaries. There's a documentary coming out that I found. Out I just I think it just got acquired. It's called Mr. Jimmy. <laughs> well, I better see that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's like a. It's about like the Japan's like Jimmy Page impersonator. Whoa. Yeah, it's a documentary that played. At South by 2019, I saw it in 2019, Jeez. and it just now is about to come out. <laughs> oh my god! Like, yeah, that's sometimes that's how long of a tale something has, and sometimes things never that's come sad. out. You know, it's yeah. So you try to see as many things as possible to try to try to give a film a boost that might disappear because it really does. Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, when I was at Cannes, one of the things that people were talking about, one of the major conversations people were having were about like how hard it's becoming and festivals are noticing this and publicists are knowing, noticing this, how hard it is to get these smaller titles, somebody, anybody writing about them, yeah. you yeah. know, it's people, outlets just don't have the resources to allocate. You know, right. it's, I think it once, sucks. maybe a couple times a year and this happens to you probably far more frequently cause you write more, but certainly like when I champion something like the quiet girl from last year, or uh, a movie girl. called You Can Live Forever, which came out finally this year. Um, I think that might have played a festival last year. It might have been um, Tribeca or one of those mm. festivals. Mm-hmm. And just by putting my review on Twitter or something, the publicist or you know who's ever running the Twitter account for that particular film will retweet it and thank me and be like appreciative that I actually championed their film because... Not a lot of people are, and it's yeah. sad, and they're great films, and they deserve the, to be discovered, you know? Yeah. And then now we're going to get inundated probably around November with tons and tons of fun things to talk about and 
Oh, tons, award tons season. Yeah. yeah. I, can't, I can't wait, but I'm also some, like going to ready ready to be exhausted. Some people say we're already at it. Some people say it never ends. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I could have sworn I saw an article that said that they're already sending out screeners for some things, which doesn't seem right. I think I got my first award screener maybe like a couple weeks ago or something really? like that. I think I wow. got one. I think it was like for an animated film. <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess that happened last year, too. <laughs> yeah. I think about it. Yeah. That's yeah. just funny. <laughs> you know, it's, it's always happening, but I I'm always getting. I mean, you always say me. Always getting emails from yeah. publishers. We're like, please, could you please just review this. <laughs> you, just watch it. Please just watch it. And it's yeah. like, I don't even have time to watch it. You know. I, yeah. I get. I get the ones to like. Please interview this director. <laughs> yeah. I you get know. the. Could, please interview this director. I always get the, the people who take their swings. Like, is there any way you could do this for New York Times? I'm, like, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. I. Aww. They're not interested. <laughs> I, I don't know what kind of pool you think I have at the New York Times. Yeah, and sometimes I watch the trailer and I'm like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you don't want me writing about it. But some, yeah. sometimes I've you know, talked to filmmakers who, the really small ones, they'll take even the negative review. Just wow. somebody writing about their film. Yeah. Like, just for them to put, you know, like, was it... David Lynch put the two thumbs down. Yeah, for Lost Highway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I'll never just, forget that. Sometimes <laughs> that's... That's enough, right? Because sure. nobody else is writing about their stuff, and it's it's been it's become it's the existential not the existential, but it's it's the big crisis that's happening. I think in film criticism yeah. that no one's people are talking about in the shadows of of at film festivals of like we're programming 150 features and only 50 are being written about. You know, that's nuts, and that's there's a lot wow. of films that just fall away. But do you think too many movies are being made? No. <laughs> <laughs> Never. Yeah. But Never. I mean, like, and also people tend to focus on all the TV shows because they're so high quality. You know, a lot of people, more people are talking about the Quote, bear and unquote, the white, high white lotus and all those things. Like, that's what becomes the water cooler talk Quote, more unquote, than some films. Quality. That's why, like, to me, Oppenheimer and Barbie was exciting. Yeah. Because like now, just regular people I know are wanting to know about those movies, or they went to see them and they have an opinion, and it's just that doesn't happen so much anymore. You know? Yeah, there, it doesn't feel like the time when Pulp Fiction came out and suddenly everybody I know was just like, "Oh my God, I saw this amazing film. Let me talk about it." You know? Yeah, you know, I I know. I'm sure it's the same way with you, where I know a film is going to break out if some, if three people at my day job ask me about yep. it. Yep, yep, <laughs> that's very true. Yes, yes. Three people, are, hey, huh? what do you think about this movie? I'm like, oh, okay, so yeah. you, this, it's reached here. It was it's, everything, everywhere, all at once last year. <laughs> yes, no, it was. I think for weeks people asked me, oh, you're a what do, you, what do you think about this movie called Everything Everywhere? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that's a, it's a great movie. I was at the yeah, premiere. Yeah. Um, what, top five movie viewing experience. Premiere at... That was so much everything. fun. Were you there for everything yeah. for the premiere? I think so. It was at the, the City North, right? Or No, no, no. I'm talking about the world premiere. Oh, the wor oh wow. The world okay. premiere of South Damn. By. All right. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, that's right. I heard about that. I heard it about was that. Yeah, top yeah. five. I this was the few times I, I was like movies are uh, back baby because yeah because one the sci-fi crowd have you ever been to sci-fi I have a couple times so yeah so you know they're drunk yes of course everyone's <laughs> plastered that's Austin for you like, yeah. that's why everything gets well received if something gets badly received at a sci-fi yeah. you know it's terrible <laughs> yeah they do love everything now I think about it so like but the people there it was at the Paramount it was packed mm. the cast came out. Um, 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 
um, why am I blanking on her name right now? Michelle. Michelle. Michelle Yo comes out. She's pumping up the crowd. It was oh. like a concert. It was like a rock concert. Wow. You could have lit those people on fire and they still have <laughs> been cheering. Like it was just amazing. And it like I was I was thinking in my head like if this film isn't good these people are gonna rip this theater apart because no <laughs> they had hyped it so much yeah and like, even after I saw the premiere in Chicago I still like is this really gonna resonate with everybody because it's so weird too but it, it was it like really did. the loudest cheers I've ever heard the loudest wow. laughs I've ever heard it was just like. This is what movies are about, and mm. I I know people when like, oh, I don't like the movie. I yeah, it, that's kind of it. Sad. Was almost like if you had been at that screening, I don't think there's any way you could not have liked the movie. Yeah, it was like oh. one of those things where the crowd made it a fantastic film, right? And it just kind of caught wildfire from then on. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. You know, and I wish I wish that would happen more with those types of films that are daring and take chances, you know, and just, yeah. but they managed to be entertaining at the same time, much like Chameleon Street. Much like Chameleon Street. I wish I'd been in the room for, for, for at that Sundance screening with Chameleon Street no premiered. Kidding. That's like really, that is, that's the drug of film festivals. It's I bet. being in that room. Oh, sure. When the moment happens where you're just like, that this is it. Yeah. Like this is <laughs> like you know this is gonna kill. Like uh, you know, my favorite night at TIFF was seeing world premiere of Knives Out and Dolomite oh, is my name yeah. back to back. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean I'm just happy that I saw the Chicago International Film Festival and Ryan Johnson and Michael Shannon were there. Like Oh yeah, Michael Sh- the Michael Shannon Q and A. Oh, I bet. He's Fantastic. A he's a <laughs> yeah, and he's got a directorial debut coming out maybe later this year. And I'm like, oh, I would love to interview Michael Shannon, but he's just so weird, and I love him. <laughs> I've never interviewed him. I would love to interview yeah, him. Of I feel like I'd be like in shock. Yeah, <laughs> caught in shock. And uh, good Chicago man. Oh, 100%. <laughs> Michael Shannon. Yeah. No, for sure. Like him, I, I, I've always said like too, besides Paul Thomas Anderson, my dream interviews are Michael Shannon and Michelle Williams because I just think they're two of the best actors working right now. This, <laughs> if this not the is best. Off, off the record. I came so close to interviewing Michelle Williams. Aww. So like... <laughs> for showing up or... No, yeah, for showing up. And so, and not even just for showing up. So IndieWire had this, their crafts team had this thing where they were like, we really want to like highlight crafts and da 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 but most mm. importantly what we want to do is we try to want to try to do something with um partnerships and so they approached me and they're like we want you to interview Kelly Reichart and Michelle Williams together oh, to talk wow. about their partnership so showing up got delayed <laughs> yep I and then yep. Michelle Williams um was pregnant right um, which low key is the reason that it premiered at TIFF and nowhere else. Uh, it's because she was in upstate New York and she could make a drive. Sure, and so she... sure. Makes sense. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so uh, that's why how TIFF got that scoop and no, it premiered nowhere else. The Fablemans. So you've been yeah. playing any of the festivals really. <laughs> um, but no, but so and then but by the time showing up finally came out, they had the Eric Adams had left. 
I think it was about to leave IndieWire, and mm-hmm. they were they had had their budget slashed on crafts, and then uh, Michelle Williams wasn't that interested in it anymore, Aww. the idea anymore, and yeah. it was I came so close. I remember telling Mariah about it. Mariah's like, I will fucking murder you, and <laughs> 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 take your place. <laughs> of course, who wouldn't want that interview? But of it was course, so yeah. close to happening. I was just oh. <laughs> but it was great that Kelly came out for. Um, yeah, when it played at the Siskel. I think she, she yeah. might have done two Q&As. Might be at the River East and the Siskel. I, I had interviewed her once before Kelly Reichardt, and it was for First Cow, mm. and it was I was at the beginning of the pandemic. Yep, I remember that. That was the last movie I saw in the theater. And I was in a f- coffee shop in Philly, of oh. all places. I was wow. visiting my friend um, uh, who uh, South by been canceled, and I had the extra... Air, airline stuff and I I was like he was like why don't you just come out and we just get high for the week like, <laughs> cool yeah. so I came out and I was like but I just had this one thing that I had to do I had to interview Kelly Reichardt and so I went into this coffee shop and interviewed her by phone and at that time I used to record used to use a phone call recorder right mm-hmm. I did not know that Philly had a law that you can't do that. Whoa! I didn't and know so that those either. apps block. So it huh. recorded, but only my voice. Oh, shit. Oh, and of course, man. I didn't check the recording and because it was like, first cow had already been delayed. Yeah. So I knew it wasn't coming out for months. Oh. And of course, months later, I check it, and it's only my voice, and I... Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, when you have technical difficulties, it was it's con- the worst con- consequence. I was supposed to interview, but that's I, just nuts. I didn't know Philly could have. It was a Pennsylvania. Like, it was a Pennsylvania thing. Wow. They had just put that law through like two weeks. So don't ago do any before. interviews over the phone in well, Philly. Philly. It was specifically don't recorders. use don't use yeah. the phone review. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to do at a secondary source hmm. the recording. <laughs> yep. Well, <laughs> nowadays everything. Yeah, it's like the conversation, right? Everybody's listening in on everything. <laughs> yeah. So it was. It was just hmm. terrible. So I've I've had two two opportunities to interview Kelly, and it hasn't happened technically. <laughs> well, I think she'll keep working. Yeah. So. <laughs> she'll, hopefully, she'll keep working. I hope so. Yeah. I know she basically has that uh, professor job thing that she does, and probably does very well. Always like, oh, I wish, like, yeah, some of my favorite directors, I wish I could just take a class with them. <laughs> <laughs> she was really cool. She was so intelligent. I'm sure. Absolutely yeah, she sounds like She's it. one of the most intelligent directors ever. Like, she's one of those very few people who I've interviewed. I'm like, oh, you're smarter than me. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're oh. absolutely smarter than me. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're one smart cookie, Robert. And thank you for coming on <laughs> the show. <laughs> and, uh, gosh, I can't wait to have you back on next year because uh, this was a great talk. And I'm so glad you've been able to finally come on. Where can people find you uh, if they want to track you down? Uh, you and read can your work. Find me um, at uh, at the artist formerly known as Twitter X <laughs> um, at eight one two film reviews. You can also find me on Instagram at eight one film eight one two film reviews. Same thing, same handle on um on Letterboxd as well. Um, and if you don't like social media, then just keep refreshing the Roger Ebert page. I'll probably pop yeah. up somewhere. Same thing with Definitely. the New York Times. Um, those are my two main outlets. Or Robert will just like 
Yeah, he'll mail you his reviews if you ask. <laughs> <laughs> Send him by carrier pigeon. <laughs> I should I start that up. I should like charge extra or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> or you could have like a like one of those one eight hundred number services, or just like, you know, Robert yeah. will give you a review for free. <laughs> <laughs> or, be, or actually, actually, off if you don't like social media. Um, follow me on Substack, A12 Film Reviews. I've actually got a couple. I love Substack. <laughs> I've got a couple of things coming out on there. Um, something I'm dropping, t- or uh, what you'll see it when this thing goes up. But it, it's I got something going up on tomorrow. Um, and then I've got this piece I've been working on that's going up. I think in a week. Hmm. That is about um, um, uh, Oppenheimer being at Christopher Nolan's. Uh, the life and death of Colonel Blimp. Wow, that's so cool! <laughs> I want to read that now. <laughs> <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> thanks, Robert. This is a blast. Oh, thanks. For we'll have you back on next year for sure. Look forward to it. Me too. Yeah.